Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, the season has started. It's it's I'm having a blast so far. What are, what's your takeaways from the first, you know, week and a half or so of action we've had here? Well, small sample size, of course, but it's fun to see actual games that have meaning and players who are sort of trending, you know, in, in whatever direction, you know, Stephen Kwan's hot and Mackenzie Gore started a game and like these things that like you always thought like, okay, what if that happened are actually happening. So it's fun to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, we'll, we'll talk about Kwan a little bit later, I'm sure, but I'm, I've been a huge Kwan fan. I know you are as well. Yeah. And, and he's cooling off a little bit here, but man, is he, was that first week or so from him just, <laughs> So that's that's peak baseball. That's what we were. That's the kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's great when Otani goes out and strikes out ten guys and hits a couple homers the next day, and it's and it's great when we see Trout hitting one four fifty two. But those little things of the the little guys, the Stephen Kwan's just going ballistic for a week. That's mm-hmm. that's the kind of baseball I was really missing during the lockout. Yeah, and and to see like you know the stats update, and you look at FanGraphs page, you're like, oh my goodness you know of course that's not sustainable but you know it's fun to see absolutely well we will certainly get into a lot of that stuff we have a little bit of the off-season kind of leftovers or the like early season trades that came through to to get as well uh but first i just want to say happy 50th episode john yay (laughs) we made it to 50 josh good job i it's it's 50 it's it's not 100 it's not 200 it's not it's not a thousand i'm not going to act like this this is some bigger milestone than it is but it, it feels like a big deal i mean this podcast it's the first one either you or i have ever done and it, it kind of came together a little bit out of nowhere it was just kind of an idea i had at some point early on of hey let's let's why don't we just make a podcast? Like <laughs> we, we both like talking baseball and there's so much to talk about when it comes to baseball trade values. And I think we could, we can make something kind of amusing here. And so that's what we started with back in, uh, back in February, 2020, it looks like right before the world ended. Oh. Um, and, and at least for me, it was, it was a very different time back then. I was still in school and the way I was re- recording podcast episodes was every time we had one scheduled, I would drive a half hour, depending on traffic, maybe even like 45 minutes down to campus. And I'd get in one of the editing booths at our journalism school so I could have the mic and the editing software. And I'd have to, I'd have to make that trip back and forth every time we decided to, <laughs> to record a podcast. And then of course everything hit and I was lucky enough that our school made that ASU made uh, the editing software I was using available to us uh, to download on our own laptop. So we were able to continue the podcast uh, from, from the comfort of my home as the the pandemic began. Um, And and it's really just taken on from there. And we've had a lot of different formats. We've had a lot of different, you know, regularity, whether it's every two weeks, every week, every month, whatever. Um, But it's, it's been a lot of fun for me. And I, (laughs) I hope it has been for you too, John, as well as the listeners. Yeah, I'm I'm thankful that people seem to I don't know if they do or not, but but we like talking about it as you mentioned. So hopefully people like like um, talking, hearing us talking about trades and stuff. So let's uh, let's keep doing it. 
Exactly. So later on in the episode, we're just going to have a little bit of a, a best of BTV kind of segment. I've pulled out some trades from the history of our site that have been particularly close or particularly meaningful for the site. And, you know, not not to pat ourselves on the back too hard, but, you know, just something a little fun to go over for the 50th episode to, to look back a little bit on on the ones that have gone really well. Um, but before we do that, we have a whole lot of news to cover uh, from that last kind of week of the offseason, week of spring training, and then kind of bleeding into the first couple of days of the season where there were still moves, there were ex- extensions and, and non-extensions and that are all important to talk about. Um, so let's let's jump right into it. Let's start with one that I actually covered a little bit already. Um, it, it broke right after we recorded our last podcast episode, right before I was about to publish it, actually. And so I just went ahead and hopped in and, and gave my thoughts on it for a couple minutes and, and stuck that at the beginning of the last episode. So if you want to hear more in depth of what I think about this deal, uh, go check out that last episode. Uh, but John hasn't gotten a chance to kind of say his piece on the episode for it. So this is the San Diego Padres acquiring left-handed pitcher Sean Manaya, who we had at $14.1 million in median trade value, and right-handed pitcher Aaron Holliday, who we had at $0.2 million. Uh, from the Oakland Athletics in exchange for infielder Erubiel Angeles at 2.4 million and right-handed pitcher Adrian Martinez at 0.5. So this one's rejected. Big gap between the two sides. Um, I've said my piece on it in the last episode and I've as well written up my thoughts on it. Um, I, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, I suppose, but I, I have a whole write-up that I posted last weekend of all of the significant, well, all of the trades, period, <laughs> from this offseason, both pre-lockout and post-lockout, um, with the values at the time, as well as our explanation, kind of a quick breakdown of each trade. I'll link that in the show notes. So if you want to review anything from the offseason, if you miss anything, if you ever want to go back and see, you know, maybe Sean Manaya has a good start and you want to see, oh, what, what did that trade look like back then? And you, you can do so on this article. It'll be linked in the notes. But uh, uh I like I said I've said my piece on this trade multiple times and we have so much we want to cover this time so let's I'm gonna hand it over to John and let's get his take on this. So um, I think we're a little high on Manaya and a little low on Angeles is what it boils down to. Um, looking back on sort of at the pattern particularly of this off season but in in some previous as well. Um, I realized we had made a mistake on on valuing starting pitchers a little bit too high. Um, going back a couple of years, we thought oh, there, when there was like a, a couple of years ago, there was a run on starting pitchers. And <clears throat> when I was doing the model building, I was thinking, oh, I guess I guess starting pitchers are so valuable that they're all going a little bit higher. And so there was like a premium attached to it. And then in 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 subsequent trades, um, they weren't. The aces are, you know, the Scherzers of the world are, but the Manias not so much. Um, and you could see that in you know, some of the trades this offseason, whether it was Bassett, Paddock, Manaya, whoever, um, we're always a little bit high. So I think going forward, we're going to adjust that down a little bit, about 10%. So we're a little high in Manaya. And <clears throat> on Angeles, you know, all those horses we checked had him as like a 40, right? So I think we felt confident that we had the right sort of backing for that sort of low number. But um, there was a, a report from... Uh, Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs had said, oh, the pro models might be a little higher on him because he does have a strong hit tool that when you project it out, figures he's going to have a higher probability of perhaps being a decent major league hitter. Um, Now, that's still a bit of a long shot, but he doesn't have the tools that most prospect evaluators like and therefore rate higher. But he does have the ability to hit, and that is a tool itself. But even even though he doesn't look like he can, 
apparently he can. So, <clears throat> so the models, the pro models might have been higher. So there's probably a gap. So Maya probably should have been around 11. He might have been around six or seven. I don't know, a little bit higher if you sort of bump him up a grade or two. Um, so you can explain it that way. The third thing I would say is. Um, I think the A's just wanted to trade Manaya before the season started, and I think that was clear. Um, and they were getting lowballed because everyone knew they were trying to trade him, and so they finally just, you know, they pulled him off the market a little bit first, and they finally said, okay, we'll just take the best offer we can get. Oh, this guy might be able to hit, so let's do it. I think that's what it boiled down to. Yeah, I think that's the best explanation. That it's really a combination of all those factors. You know, um, the 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 value that they would lose by hanging on to him if he underperforms or if he gets hurt factoring in you know the obvious incentive by the <clears throat> by management to cut costs and that he's owed about 10 million this upcoming season that was certainly not something attractive you know even if they have to even if they trade him in june so early on that's still half of his salary that they'd be on the hook for not that it's very much money at all and they're they're running a pathetically low payroll but if you're looking at this from a management perspective, it, you know, there, there seems to be a directive have been a directive to, Hey, if you can get a, a deal that you even kind of like for, for this guy, let's get the money off the books kind of a thing um, yeah. that, that could have played a role. And and I think there is something there with Angelis, you know, we haven't heard much on Martinez. He seems like more of a depth guy, you know, could start, could be a reliever, um, should be big league ready soon. And, and the A's are pretty shallow on big league arms right now. Um, so maybe that's, that maybe he's not a guy that they have identified as, oh, we think he's more valuable than, than other teams do. Maybe it's just more of, hey, he's near MLB ready depth. Let's let's take that. We need to fill up our upper minors right now. Um but but it could also be a case of, you know, the A's internally just being higher on Enhilis than some of the other players they were offered either from the Padres or from other teams. And so maybe another deal they could have made would have been better by, you know, industry consensus type values. But if they're particularly high on Enhilis, they might just say you know, forget it. Let's get the guy we like instead of the guy that we don't like as much who who might be worth more to other teams and, and let's pull this deal off. And yeah, whole bunch of whole bunch of factors here leading them to kind of pull the trigger on a deal that might not have been perfect from a value standpoint that make it make sense. Uh, but it is still I think it's still fair to view it as a bit of an underwhelming return uh, for yeah. Oakland, either from a from a neutral perspective or as an A's fan. Yeah, and you know, one other point I would make is that it enabled the Padres to do the later trade we'll talk about in moving Chris Paddock because, you know, they basically from their point of view, I think they like Manaya a little bit more than Paddock in terms of this season, at least the only season they have control of him. So, you know, he slots in as like their number three starter ish, you know, behind say Darvish and, and uh, Musgrove. So whereas Paddock would probably have been like six or seven. So I think they feel like they got a they got an upgrade on their rotation and they were able to move Paddock for other things they needed. So it was a win for them as well. Yeah, definitely. Let's let's transition straight into that paddock trade. We have a handful of smaller ones here that are kind of interesting. I guess they the team saved all their really interesting trades for for the last minute here. Um, mm. But but as you mentioned, this one really goes hand in hand with the other one. Paddock was already kind of on the outside looking in of San Diego's pitching staff, and then they pick up Manaya, and there's really just isn't a great spot for him. Um, he's already into arbitration, even though he does have all three of his options remaining. So they could have just chosen to send him, send him down. But uh, why do that when you can instead trade him and improve your team? And that's what they did. So they sent him to the Minnesota twins. Um, we have Paddock at 17.4 million. They also sent Emilio Pagan, who we have at 0.0 million and a player to be named later who we do not know yet. 
Um, in exchange, the Padres received left-handed reliever Taylor Rogers at $7.2 million, outfielder Brent Rooker at $1.9, and Cash, which was $6.6 million. It covered Rogers down to the big league minimum, essentially. Uh, and and it, it's very clear that Cash was a, a big motivator in this deal. Uh, you know, Pagan and Paddock were each making a couple million, and now they're also going to just be adding on Rogers at um, at the league minimum. And we know they're just up against the luxury tax, and that's not something that the Padres, as a franchise, can really get into the habit of blowing past, or at least that they that they seem like they want to. Um, so the cash was a big motivator here. For the Padres, it's pretty obvious. You know, they're they're getting rid of Paddock, who clearly wasn't working out there. There's been some questions about. Uh, San Diego's approach as a franchise to pitcher development and Paddock being a two-pitch guy with some injury history and struggles in the big leagues the last couple seasons um, that some of that prospect shine had really worn off and and it didn't seem like he had much of a future there in San Diego and they're giving up Emilio Pagan as well who again he's, he's just kind of a, a serviceable reliever uh, a middle innings type arm uh, he's got good strikeout and walk rates, but he gets hammered when he gets hit. You know, bad exit velocities, lots of home runs, that kind of guy where he'll be he'll be useful on a contender, but he's not a guy that it's going to hurt to give up. And then we don't know the player to be named later yet, but but that's all it's costing the Padres to add a really, really good left-handed reliever in Rodgers and an outfielder in Brent Rooker, which they really needed, especially a right-handed hitting one. They really just didn't have any kind of outfield depth to speak of. Um, but adding Rooker, and, and he's a guy that some... Some evaluators still like. He used to be a more notable prospect than he is now. His stock has fallen a bit, but he could be a, a solid short side platoon bat. He's got some power. He was looking like a pretty developed college bat when he was drafted, and it's hasn't quite turned out that way, but you figure there might something still be something in the tank. It, it makes a ton of sense for them. The side that gets me a little gives me a little bit of pause is the Minnesota side of things. Um I, I don't know if I, I I understand it. They obviously needed pitching, and you know it's a year of Taylor Rogers. Uh, only has so much value to any team, but especially to a team like the Twins, that's clearly you know they're not necessarily pushing all of their chips in for 2022 alone. Carlos Correa kind of fell into their laps, but beyond that, they're looking at kind of a longer term picture here. You know, hopefully con- uh, contending within the next couple years, and Paddock fits that timeline better than a one year guy in Rogers. Uh, but it does leave their bullpen looking fairly thin right now. And in exchange for a guy in Paddock who, as I mentioned, just has so many question marks. You know, I I feel, obviously this deal worked out uh, by our model. I, I don't think I actually mentioned that. Um, it's a minor overpay by San Diego, $17.4 million heading to the Twins, $15.7 million heading to San Diego. Um, and, and that's largely because of the cash. Without the cash, it's just rejected entirely. Uh, but it's 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 accepted by the model as that minor overpay. But the part I'm least confident about about this deal and and about like he's one of the the players in our model that I'm the least confident about overall is Paddock and his 17.4 million dollar value because it's just it's so polarizing. You don't know if he's healthy. You don't know if he's good. You don't know what he is in any sense of the world word. So it's a it's a bit of an interesting risk for the Twins to be taking. I've been rambling. <laughs> I, I let myself get away there. Uh, what's your take on this one, John? So obviously the Twins needed starting pitching, and Paddock has upside. If you actually look at Paddock's stats, don't look at the ERA, but look at the you know FIP and the XFIP, and um, he actually was better in 2021 by those numbers. Um, 
well, at least in terms of uh, XFIP, uh, than he was in 19, 2019, where he was a 2.4 pitcher and toast to the town. Um, you know, XFIP-wise, he was 405 in 2019, down to 377 in 2020 and 387 in 2021. You know, and, you know, I know there's different opinions about different statistics, and I'm just picking one out, but uh, some other ones as well showed that he was getting unlucky, that he was actually quite good. If you look at his uh, K to K9 to uh, walk nine, is actually very strong as well, uh, pretty consistent, you know. So the numbers, you know, show that he's actually better than he looked. And so he may have been getting unlucky, maybe some defensive issues behind him. Um, but the Twins, I think, liked his upside. And obviously they needed a pitcher with more more control to fit, you know, the years of control they have otherwise as well with Correa and Sonny Gray has another year of control after this one. So, so their whole model is let's, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's not just take a rental. Let's let's take guys who can gonna be with us for a little while. And they also are very value conscious. It seems like if you look at every Minnesota trade, they seem to come out ahead at least on paper on our in our model. It, you know, they don't seem to lose trades. They seem to get good value out of them. So I think they like it from that point of view as well. And I think maybe um, even though Rod, losing Rogers hurts, he was obviously an elite reliever. Um, but relievers are the kind of, you know, you can you can develop relievers a little bit. If you have the confidence in your system, I mean, the A's used to do that all the time. They would trade their closer and this next guy up, next guy up, trade him, next guy up. The Rays do this a lot. So the Twins, I think, have this sort of same mentality as well. They'll probably pick another guy who, who, can, who can take his place and, you know, they get good value out of it. So I think they sort of look at it from that point of view. Paddock is better than he looks. There's good value in the deal overall. We can replace the closer. So that's why. And the Twins have a pretty fluid pitching staff, it looks like, this season. They have a good handful, you know, four, five, six top prospects, uh, top pitching prospects that are either in the be- in the bigs, open open the season with the team, or just kind of knocking on the door in AAA, and they're going to get their chance at some point this year. And so that's going to come in a variety of different roles. Right now they are using uh, their top prospects, Yoan Duran and Josh Winder, out of the bullpen and, and Winder hasn't quite gotten it going yet, but Duran looks like a late inning arm right out the gate. You know, he's throwing 101 mile an hour splinkers. It's <laughs> he's impressive. And so having guys like that in the bullpen, having uh, Caleb Thielbar and Danny Coulomb as the other left-handed options who, you know, you just hear those names and it doesn't sound like much, but they're actually performing fairly well and and deal bar in particular was pretty good last season and has added a couple ticks of velocity this year and even though he's like 35 or something not the names that come to mind when you think of you know quality left-handed relievers in the game today but there's there was some notable depth there behind rogers that maybe makes it a little bit easier to move a guy like him and, and then there's the obvious one with brent rooker where that team is just loaded in outfield options not necessarily that any of them are, you know, stars day one outside of Buxton, but Kirilov, former top prospect, Trevor Larnack, uh, Kyle Garlick was good in a platoon role for them last year. They have Kepler still. They have uh, Gilberto Celestino, I believe is his name, um, as a backup right now. Uh, there's there's other names as well. They have a whole lot of outfielders. Luis Arias sticks out there sometimes. They're using Austin Martin out there in the minors occasionally. Tons of outfield depth. Brent Rooker was was taking a 40-man spot more than anything else. It was completely superfluous to them. Doesn't hurt to lose him at all. And the other thing to point out is 
you know, they can always pick up uh, another reliever at the deadline, right? A lot of teams do this. Okay, let's see how we do. If we're in it, we can pick up a reliever fairly cheaply, especially a rental kind of guy from a non-contender. You know, maybe Lou Trevino from the A's will be available then. So so you can always pick up a guy here and there to replace the, the closer you have if you need to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one last note I want to make on this is that it seems for now, and obviously these things can change whenever, but it seems like for now, Eric Hosmer is a San Diego Padre. Uh, the the rumored deal that they were gonna that they were talking with the Mets with Hosmer involved both Paddock and Pagan and that fell through and and by trading these guys to another team that seems to kind of put the kibosh on it entirely. We've heard guys like Manny Machado and and others with the team, you know, backing up Hosmer and saying like I would be mad if he was traded. He's our guy and I think Bob Melvin's given him the vote of confidence. So whether it's a good baseball decision or not to continue to play him, it seems like they're going to and and at least maybe reevaluate at the deadline next off season, whenever, but for now he's a Padre. Yeah. Obviously, you know, AJ Preller was trying to upgrade his team. However he could, you know, he tried plan a trade Hosmer, open up the roster spot, see if we can get plan B. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, he was trying various combinations of things. He ended up saying, okay, let's get Mania in paddock out Rogers in your, you know, he's finding ways to upgrade in other ways that weren't the obvious ones that you saw perhaps more on the pitching side than on the lineup side, but he's doing it. Yeah, I, I wrote my off-season revamp of the Padres. Uh, it was probably back in, in January or so. Um, and, and my kind of conclusion was, like, it's it's hard to see how Preller's going to... Like, he, he, he always knows how to wheel and deal and, and improve his team in kind of unique ways, but it's tough to see how he's going to do it this time. You know, he's so <laughs> limited on money and he's so limited on prospects. Like, mm-hmm. you figure he has to get rid of one of Myers or Hosmer and that's going to cost him a prospect to do it and... and I don't know what's going to happen here. He's going to he's going to have to give up Hassel or Campusano to get something done here. And instead, of course, he just went out and picked up Manaya for a 2.2 million dollar, I believe. <laughs> I put I put the tab away, but you know, a, a lower, yeah, 2.4 million dollar trade value prospect in in Anhelis, and then that allows him to flip from the rotation depth and and you know, he goes out and signs Nick Martinez, which was already looking like a fairly smart deal early on in the off season. And he's, he's doing Preller things. And, and I, yep. I still don't, I don't know if I have them as, as a powerhouse, like they were kind of looking like they were headed to be a couple of years ago, you know, after the hot 2020, they make the playoffs. It really looked like they were the next big team on the rise. I don't think they're quite that anymore, but mm-hmm. he's done his thing. He's built another very solid team with, with this time with more limited resources than he's ever really been faced with. And so you yep. just, you have to tip your cap. Yep. All right, we have a couple more significant trades um, that are that are pretty interesting here. First one, the Miami Marlins picked up a couple relievers from the Orioles. It was left-handed pitcher Tanner Scott at 3.7 million, and right-handed pitcher Cole Sulcer at 3.3. Uh, in exchange, they sent the Orioles outfielder Kevin Guerrero at 1.3, left-handed pitcher Antonio Velez at 0.3 a player to be named later who isn't known yet, and a competitive balance round B pick, which we have estimated at $4 million in trade value. So this one's obvious for the Marlins side of things. You know, they don't really give up any big prospects. They give up their comp pick, which we'll talk about that in a second, but it doesn't hurt them much, and they add a solid lefty and a solid righty into what was looking like a pretty weak bullpen. And, you know, the Marlins aren't quite going all in. They've made some additions, you know, picking up Jorge Soler and Avisel Garcia, Jacob Stallings. Uh, so they're they're trying to, to start heading toward contention. 
I mean, they, they made the playoffs in 2020, and I think we all knew that was just a big 60-game season fluke type of thing. Uh, they took a pretty massive step back last year, but they're done being at the bottom of that division. They're, they have enviable young pitching, and they're, and they're ready to try to take steps forward, and this is another one of those. So, I mean, it's hard not to like it from their perspective. I don't know if I totally get it for the Orioles. So, obviously, the, the prize of this deal is that Comp B pick. Uh, which, as I mentioned, we have estimated at $4 million in trade value. That's the value of the prospect that is typically available at that point in the draft. And so, you know, that could theoretically fluctuate depending on, you know, the depth of the draft in that season. But that's our that's our kind of go-to estimate for it, $4 million. And that's the prize of the deal. And, and that's defensible for a rebuilding team like the Orioles where, you know, it's valuable to get an extra piece of young cost-controlled talent in the draft. But that draft pick isn't going to make the big leagues for another, like, three years at the very least. And if they take a high schooler, it could be four or five. Um, and unless we're talking some, some they, hit, they hit the lottery on a, on a college player who really just flies through the minors. It's going to be, like, three years until that player is making a major league impact. And it just brings into question for me what direction the Orioles are really going in right now. They didn't do a whole lot in the offseason. Um it's not like they traded away Trey Mancini or anything, but they also didn't really add anything. You didn't really start to see any of those signs of we're ready for this rebuild to end that you kind of saw from the Marlins or that you see from the Tigers or the Rangers. Uh, you, you didn't see any of that. You really just saw more of them kind of spinning their wheels, it seemed like. And I'm, I'm not encouraging that teams should go out and, you know, blow their budgets before they're good. I, I, I have some questions about what the Rangers did for sure. And I'm also not saying that this is an atrocity by the Orioles to trade two somewhat okay, <laughs> like like middle to late inning reliever types, and with especially with how volatile relievers can be. You know, there's a chance that one of them breaks down tomorrow and you get nothing back for them. That, mm -hmm. That's a pretty real possibility for relievers. So I'm not saying that's egregious by any means. But Scott had three years of control left. Solcer had four. It seems like, you know, you're not taking a huge risk if their value goes down since they're already kind of in that middling, you know, they're at 3.7 and 3.3. That's not a haul that you're missing out on by if they did just collapse. And I think there's a very real chance that a strong first half and with the going rate for relievers at the deadline, they could even go up. So I don't know. I don't, I don't get it for the Orioles. I don't know their, I don't, I can't see their long-term plan or their short-term plan here other than. Let's let's keep kind of churning talent and wait for wait for the team to get good instead of actively trying to to help get it there. I don't know. I, I could be way off here, uh, John. <laughs> I I hear you. I hear you. I I I don't see reason to to think too hard about this one. No, I think it was just a good value trade for the Orioles. Um, you know, and look at the numbers. It was seven million uh, going to Miami and six point six going to uh, Baltimore uh, with the caveat that the PTBNL is estimated at about one. I would also note that um, one of the prospects going to, to Baltimore, Guerrero, Kevin Guerrero, um, was upgraded by Fangraphs uh, a few days ago. And so he would have, he would be at 1.7, which would make this an even seven to seven. So it was already, it's already accepted, but it makes it even closer anyway. But the point is, um, I think it was a good value trade for, for Baltimore because relievers are value, uh, are volatile. And they sold high on the two that they, you know, that 
they felt had some value, and Marlins obviously needed some some relief help. Um, so I I don't necessarily think it's like the end of the world for Baltimore. I mean, they're not quite there yet, obviously. The draft pick is clearly the the number one thing that they were going for here. So, you know, I, I get that, you know, if you're a fan of the Orioles, you might think, oh, my God, when is this rebuild going to end? Why are they keep, you know, why do they keep doing this? It's going to take forever. It, it You know, keep in mind, you can, we just talked about A.J. Preller and how he's moving one piece to get another piece and moving get, getting one piece and moving that one. You can wheel and deal a little bit. Once you get closer, you can wheel and deal whoever that draft pick is a year from now. You can start to, I mean, they've got a really strong farm. And we've actually talked in previous podcasts, that's the number one farm in baseball, according to our model. So they've got, you, you can start to, once you start to, to get a little bit more competitive and start sniffing competitiveness, you can start to wheel and deal from that 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 farm base you, you've got a whole bunch of prospect capital you could move if you wanted to to help the big league team so i think they're still sort of in, in accumulation mode um and and i think they've probably got a strategy and a timeline to say well, okay we're probably not competitive this year maybe next year maybe not but definitely probably two years from now they definitely want to start showing something and so all the moves are sort of aligned to that so scott and solcer probably are not going to help when they're really competitive in the mid 2020s let's say so why not trade them now for some value i suppose i i would push back slightly on saying that they sold high on both of these guys just because Tanner Scott wasn't great in 2021. And, you know, if you think that's just kind of what he is, where he's, you know, a four-ish, four-five mm-hmm. ERA guy, and, you know, he's a lefty who can get a strikeout when you need him to, but he's not going to be that kind of late-inning arm that, that he showed flashes yeah. of in 2020. If you think that's who he is, then, yeah, go ahead and trade him. But if you, if you even kind of think that he can find the strike zone enough to be that guy that he was in 2020, then I think there's definitely room for him to have put together you know just a solid first half and be worth a little bit more at the deadline so i'll I'll push back slightly on that but i think on a broader scale my complaint isn't so much about this deal specifically and more about just disappointment that the orioles seem content to just sit and wait and i like i said i'm not encouraging you know, I'm not encouraging them to go trade for a rental right now and try and speed up their contention window and waste prospects to do it. I'm not encouraging that, but they've been rebuilding forever, and it seems like they they didn't do anything this off season that gives me confidence that they'll be good in 2023 or 2024, really. Well, you know, once those prospects come, once Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez come up and those guys start to make some noise, I think you'll start to see... You know, okay, <laughs> now we have a plan. <clears throat> but I think that's what, that's what they're waiting on. Yeah, that's that's fair, I guess. <laughs> All right, the the other trade that went down this week that in that involved the Comp B pick, uh, this one's probably a little bit easier to break down. The Tigers picked up outfielder Austin Meadows at 11.1 from the Tampa Bay Rays in exchange for infielder Isaac Paredes at 4.2 and a Comp B pick, again, estimated at 4.0. So... The Tigers lost Riley Green, their top outfield prospect, to a broken foot, I believe it was, uh, in the last week of spring training. And he was he was going to make the opening day roster. He was really impressive this spring. Um, and, and with the updated CBA rules, he and Torkelson were both going to make the opening day roster. Um, but obviously with him being out for a handful of weeks with that broken foot, he couldn't. And the Tigers, even with him, were looking a little bit thin in the outfield or at least thin in left-handed power bats and so they add one here in meadows 
Um, there's a bit of a gap here in the values. It's 11.1 to 8.2. So it, it's accepted by the model. It's a minor underpay by Detroit. And it's it's pretty clear that it was kind of a a late off-season motivation from for the Rays to get out from Meadows' contract, which which isn't anything exorbitant, but he's making a little bit of money. He's got three years of arbitration that's only going to go higher. He's a fairly limited player as, you know, not a great defensive outfielder, kind of a platoon bat. And they wanted to clear a spot for their top outfield prospect, Josh Lowe, who they have cleared a spot for. He made the opening day roster, and they really like him. And so now they they in their view, they're essentially getting probably similar, if not better, production than they would have gotten out of Meadows uh, from Lowe because he's a better, he's a more dynamic player, a better defender, you know, has a better chance to hit both sided pitching. Uh, so they're improving their team at a lower cost financially, which is something that they're always looking for. And they add an, a talented infielder in Paredes who's nearly MLB ready and he could either be another contributor in their in their spinning wheel of versatile players on their roster or he could be a trade chip at the deadline and then they also get a comp b pick which lets them continue to do what they're best at which is drafting developing players uh and so this is a situation where like we say multiple times you know our values are kind of for the average team so the average team a comp b pick is worth about four million but it's definitely fair to see it being worth more than that for the Rays since they put so much value in cost-controlled talent and since they are so confident in their own abilities to draft and develop. So a little bit of a gap here, but it's very fair to see why, you know, A, it was late in the offseason, B, Meadows is a limited player and there weren't too many great landing spots for him remaining, and C, that comp B pick could be much more valuable to the Rays than it could be to other teams. And D, Paredes is really tricky to value. So, because part of evaluation is estimating playing time. Like, you know, if at the end of the day, if you're basing the system on dollars per war, how much more are you going to, you know, expect it to produce? Well, to some degree, that depends on how much playing time you're going to get, right? And Paredes is really tricky. He hasn't done a thing in the majors, but he's been very, you know, he's been very productive at the high minor, in the high minors, and a lot of advanced statistics really like his bat, and I'm sure the Rays saw that, and, you know, exit velocity and other things that said, wow, he's he's got some potential. So, you know, but you have to ask yourself, well, he was on the Tigers who weren't terribly competitive, so they wouldn't have anything to lose last year and the year before by playing him. And yet they didn't really give him that much playing time because he didn't really perform very well to the major league level. So like, what is it? Like, you can't say he's, he was blocked, for example, because he was on a rebuilding team. So, but on the other hand, you know, some projection systems like what they saw from him in the upper minors and said, Oh, just give him a little rope and, and, you know, he'll produce. So it was very tricky. So we're going with this sort of lower valuation based on the fact that he hasn't, you know, really done anything at the major league level. Like if you show if you show that you can, obviously that will change. But right now he's all potential and with a little bit of a kind of a lower probability of it because he hasn't done it yet. That's why. But he can very easily, you know, skip up quite a bit. Uh, so maybe the Rays can work with him and, and get the most out of him. So I think they like the sort of, you know, molding clay sort of aspect of it with Paredes. And of course, as you mentioned, the, the comp pick as well. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised the Rays weren't, uh, I mean, I guess we don't know for sure, but uh, I, I had Manaya as a good fit for them all offseason. I'm pretty sure I had him going there in my roster revamp, and it, and it seemed like it made sense. Um, now, even more so, I, I, I think we see a very aggressive Rays team at the deadline, regardless of what happens. 
uh, whether whether they perform like we expect them to and they're buying or whether things don't really work out and they're just kind of spinning pieces around like they do. Uh, right now, they just have so much near major league ready infield talent with Paredes joining the fold now that something's got to give. They got to move from it at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, Bruhan's an obvious trade candidate as well. Yeah. He's Xavier Edwards, Greg yeah. Allen. There's there, mm-hmm. Greg Allen. Is that Greg, his name? Greg Jones. Greg Jones. Greg Allen is an outfielder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they have so much there now and, and, that, those are four names that are all in AAA, I believe. I'd have to check mm-hmm. on Jones. but And there's so many more behind that. There's Curtis Mead over at third base. There's And, and Taylor uh, Walls is kind of stuck yes. a little bit as well. Yeah, so so there's value there. And knowing the Rays, they move from value. We saw it last season when they traded mm-hmm. Willie Adonis to open that spot for Walls and eventually Wander Franco. They're going to do... They're going to make similar moves this off season, or excuse me, this this season, <laughs> and, and potentially next off season, but this season, and especially seeing how quietly aggressive they were in the off season, you know, talking on Matt Olson, on Matt Chapman, on Freddie Freeman, even uh, they're going to be there. I, I have a feeling, and again, we don't have any solid reports on this; it's just kind of speculation. But uh, we'll talk about Jose Ramirez in a little bit, but. Had he been traded, I'm not saying he would have gone to the Rays, but it feels like the Rays would have been heavily involved. They, He would have been such a great fit for them. Um, I, I expect them to be aggressive. This isn't, you know, this isn't the traditional, oh, a team is cutting their costs. And, and you know, this isn't an A's situation by any means, this this Meadows trade. No. It's a, another smart Rays move because that's the only kind of move they know how to make. <laughs> and they're they're the Rays. They're not done. Well, they also have a couple injured pitchers as well. Uh, Patino just went on the IL. Shane Baz has been on the IL. You know, so their rotation could use a little help. So you think maybe Frankie Montas is a possibility for them. Um, maybe at the deadline, somebody else. But I think maybe they're going to look there as well. Yeah, I would not be any bit surprised to see Montas moved well before the deadline. Um, it, it just seems like... The more he establishes himself as being an excellent starting pitcher, like he did in his last start against the Rays, um, the more he pushes those concerns of the PED suspension and the rough 2020, the more he in 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 the slower first half of last season, the more he can get away from those, the the higher, not the higher his value goes necessarily, but the more confident teams will be in him. And and at the same time, teams like the Rays here will be losing arms to injuries throughout the seasons because that's just how it works. So wouldn't be too surprised to see the A's being aggressive and moving him well ahead of the deadline. And, and, you know, if we're talking about a team that's willing to make moves in April and May, the the Rays make a lot of sense there, too. So it's a good call. And they've done it before. They did Adamas early last year. They a couple of years ago, they moved Colome early. So they Mm -hmm. they don't they don't care about the deadline as long as it's the right the right move at the right time. Yep. Okay, now we just have a few uh, interesting medium-sized deals. So uh, the Brewers made a couple deals on the same day, actually, back on April 6th. And they picked up two catchers. So first, they acquired uh, Victor Caratini, who we had at $1.9 million, as well as Cash, which we don't know the value of yet, from the San Diego Padres in exchange for catcher Brett Sullivan at 0.6 and outfielder Corey Howell, also at 0.6. So that's 1.9 to one2 uh, before we account for the cash, don't know about yet. Then they also picked up Alex Jackson 
another catcher from the Marlins we have at 0.6 million in exchange for infield prospect Hayden Cantrell at 0.6 and right-handed pitcher Alexis Ramirez at 0.4. These were Milwaukee responding to an 80-game PED suspension for their backup catcher Pedro Severino. Uh, so first they went out and added Caratini, who seemed like a pretty obvious trade candidate all offseason as soon as the Padres picked up Jorge Alfaro from the Marlins for some reason. And to, to Preller's credit, <laughs> he hit well in spring training and he's off to a solid start to the year, Alfaro. So they, they had too many catchers there. They have Austin Nola. They have top prospect Luis Campusano. Caratini was kind of the odd man out as long as, long as they were okay moving him since he was kind of Darvish's personal catcher there. Uh, but it looks like they were okay with it, and it also saves them a little bit of money. And so he'll be the new Milwaukee backup. But since they traded Brett Sullivan in that deal, who was their kind of AAA waiting in the wings, they also needed to add some more AAA depth. And so they did that by picking up Alex Jackson from the Marlins. And, and he, similar situation, the Marlins have a decent catching situation, both in the big leagues and in the minors. And so he just kind of lost out there and and will be good depth for the Brewers, who are pretty thin in that category. So... Just wanted to mention these two deals because they went so hand in hand and it was immediate, not necessarily panic reaction, but an immediate reaction to the Severino suspension and just kind of a, a scramble for the Brewers to fill out behind the plate. Um, I had personally been kind of wondering how the Padres situation would work out. I've been thinking about that for most of the offseason and especially as we got late in the offseason here and it became clearer that they weren't going to trade Campusano um, and, and it seems like this kind of fell into their laps. So good for them. Yeah, expected one backup catcher trade, but not two. But I guess because they included Sullivan in the Caratini deal, they had to backfill him at AAA. So, you know, hence Alex Jackson move. So I guess it makes sense. Um, I, and, you know, these are both reasonably fair deals and they make sense for everybody. So no, not much else to add. Yeah, and it's it's not like either of these were egregiously off in either direction. Like they're both accepted, both very close. Uh, but but it is, you know, you, you feel like you can accept a little bit more variance in deals like this where, oh, shoot, we need a backup catcher now. We're not going to necessarily go out there and, and like haggle over the last guy in this deal to save to, you know, to get the values just that little bit closer. Right. Does that make sense? Like, like if, yeah. if you if the season starts tomorrow and you don't have a backup catcher out of nowhere and you need one, you're not going to be you know, holding out for, for that last little inkling of value to make that deal even well, for not, your side. You're going to, you're going to be a little bit more willing to, to accept something a little off. Not that that really happened here, but, but no, but, but even if it is, if it's 0.4 here or there, or whatever it is, is not a big, it's not even a rounding error for these teams. I mean, that's just, this is all very fungible. Once you get into the onesie twosie area, it really doesn't matter because that's, that's value that is, you know, eaten up in like a week, you know, so like it doesn't really matter. So it's, you know, as long as they're in the same ballpark, it's fine. Exactly. All right. Uh, I believe two more that I want to, yeah, two more that I want to talk about here. Uh, the first one's another catching deal. Uh, it was kind of a challenge trade here. Uh, the White Sox picked up catcher Reese McGuire at 2.9 million from the Blue Jays in exchange for catcher Zach Collins, which was, ex uh, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Collins at 0, 0.0 million. Uh, so this one was accepted by the model as a minor overpay by Toronto. What happened here is that Toronto is loaded in catching depth, or at least they were, and then Danny Jansen got hurt shortly after the season got started. But they had Danny Jansen as their starter. Uh, Alejandro Kirk, who's not necessarily a catcher long-term, but he can play catcher, and he, the bat is great there. 
Um, and, and they also have Gabriel Moreno on the way, top prospect, one of the best catching prospects in baseball. So plenty of catching options, and Reese McGuire was kind of the odd man out, especially since he was out of options. Meanwhile, Zach Collins was going to be Chicago's backup, but he kind of has a brick for a glove, <laughs> and the bat hasn't played enough to make up for it in, in the big leagues, and so they weren't too thrilled about that. Uh, but he does have an option remaining. So he headed to the Blue Jays, uh, who also, an added bonus here, Collins is a left-handed power bat, and they're pretty right-handed heavy in Toronto. So the White Sox get what they need. They get a better glove behind the plate, a, a guy you're much happier with as your backup in McGuire. And they're willing to deal with him being out of options because he's he's their guy. They don't really have anybody knocking on the door there. Um, and then in Toronto, they get some flexibility with Collins as well as the left-handed bat they want. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, with Jansen being hurt, they had to immediately add him to the roster and, and use that start using that depth. Uh, but at the time, this deal was just a, an interesting challenge trade that ticked all the boxes for each team. Each guy got a player that fit their roster a ton better than the one they gave up. Yeah, I mean, Zach Collins is at zero because he's done absolutely nothing <laughs> at the big league level. I know he was a previous you know, uh, interesting prospect, but he's really kind of fallen out of favor because he's just got too much swing and miss. And as you mentioned, there's really no defensive value from a catching standpoint. So I guess the Blue Jays were looking for a little bit upside and maybe platooning would help if you just sort of give them the chance to succeed, you know, uh, based on that, you know, maybe they thought there was something there. And obviously, you know, McGuire is expendable to your point. Um, I mean, the the White Sox side, you know, they, they spent a lot of time working with Sebi Zavala last year, who's a little bit older, I believe also out of options, and they kind of just sort of gave up on him and just needed a change of scenery backup catcher. So I, I think they made it a smart move here. I question it from the Toronto side because I don't think Collins is ever hit, and then he may, he may not, but we'll see. Uh, but McGuire at least has some real identifiable skills. He's got a good, you know, really, really good framing uh, catcher. He's got some defensive skills, and he can hit a little bit. So I think they, I mean, on paper, as well as just in common sense, it seems like Chicago got the better end of this, of this deal. I've seen some White Sox fans a little bit upset about Zach Collins' development. And how he just wasn't, he, he was used as kind of a big league backup bench piece and not allowed to get some regular ABs in AAA that they felt he might have needed to develop. Uh, it, it was a tweet I saw and a, a tweet thread and, and some agreement I saw from White Sox fans in a conversation about the team's similarly questionable handling of Andrew Vaughn right now. Um well, not not the, to compare the two at all. Vaughn is a much higher prospect, and, and yeah. Collins is a couple years off from being a prospect. So you wonder if if the ship has sailed on him, or if there's something in the tank. But just a just a possible defense for him. Yeah, and I mean, the White Sox seem to have these kind of you know big lumbering power guys who have a lot of swing and miss. You've got you know before they traded, you know they had Zach Collins, but they also have Sheets and Berger and Vaughn. It has more of a hit tool, but he's also kind of a big lumbering bower guy, you know? So like they got a lot of those kinds of guys. So he was expendable from that standpoint. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last trade. I just want to touch on really quick. Uh, the Mets acquired left-handed pitcher Yoeli Rodriguez at 0.2 million from the New York Yankees in exchange for right-handed pitcher Miguel Castro at 0.0 million. So on the surface, you know, the Mets didn't have a solid lefty reliever. They had a couple Chasen Shreve and uh, I believe another guy. Um, in on minor league deals. 
not the most inspiring left-handed relief options there. And they, they get a little upgrade here with Yoeli Rodriguez. And, and the Yankees were looking for some middle relief from the right side so they could keep some of their prospects stretched out as starters in the minor leagues. So on the surface, just very minor, very normal trade. Uh, but the wrinkle here that's pretty interesting was that Yoeli Rodriguez, uh, he came over to the Yankees in the Joey Gallo trade last uh, last deadline. I believe he was non-tendered by them and immediately re-signed to, right. to a different contract. Right. Because of that, he was essentially a free agent and signed to a free agent deal. And you can't trade a free agent for the first chunk of the season without their consent. And so what was reworked here was that he negotiated a, a $0.5 million, a $500,000 assignment bonus in exchange for allowing the deal to happen. And the Mets will be paying that bonus. So it essentially brings Rodriguez's contract or Rodriguez's surplus value down from 0.7, which is what the model had it at based off of, you know, as a Yankee and, and not counting that assignment bonus, it brings it down to 0.2. So nothing earth shattering here. I just thought it was an interesting wrinkle for somebody who obsesses over transactions and, and yeah. the minutiae. Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. But the other thing I thought you were going to say, the interesting wrinkle was it's a trade between the Mets and the Yankees who never do business yeah. together. Crosstown rival. Well, yeah, crosstown rivals. I mean, you know, I live in the New York City area and you know, never the twain shall meet. Well, in some cases, in some households they do, but there's typically either you're a Yankee household or a Mets household. And so, um, but they never... I shouldn't say never, but rarely do they ever make trades. So uh, it was interesting from that standpoint as well. Um, I think it was just a need for need and no big deal. Uh, so it's probably overthinking it to say, oh, look, but it's interesting anyway. It's it's reminiscent of, you know, the the Blue, J or, Blue Jays, excuse me, the, the Red Sox trading Stephen Drew to the Yankees, or, or was it the other way around? I forget, but it was, it was a post-prime, you know, just backup infielder type Stephen Drew. And it's, oh my goodness, the Red Sox and Yankees have made a trade or or the A's and the Giants juggling Sky Bolt last year and, and they don't make trades either. And it's just it's these funny little, like, if you're if you're doing a, these two trades haven't made the, or these two teams haven't made a trade with each other since this day, it's another asterisk you have to add to it of, well, unless you want to count this super minor <laughs> two yeah, relievers right. swapping teams weirdo deal. Um, yeah, I, I will say, I think the fans and the media make a little bit more of that aspect of things than the front offices do. I think the front office is just looking for, you know, fits and, you know, matches. And, and this one just happened to be. And so I don't think it was any anything more than that. Yeah, but if you're if you're debating between sending a top prospect to... If you're the Yankees and you're debating, actually, let me, let me frame it the other way. If you're the Mets and you're debating about sending a top prospect to the A's or to the Yankees, and you're, you you kind of need something to just help you decide which deal you should make if you like them both, I, I think it'll it'll tip the needle a little bit to not yeah. have to potentially see that prospect grow up and be a star for the other team in your market and, and steal fans from you and oh the yankees are stealing from the mets again and that kind of thing right you know it, it can play a tiny role there i think in, in a very niche situation <laughs> yeah i think that's one aspect that's a very very important i think another one is if if a player maybe has a falling out or doesn't perform well with one or the other then the other one notices like fans in the air, like Ahmed Rosario was not terribly successful for the Mets. And when, you know, after he was traded to Cleveland, we had some trade proposals on the site, you know, cause the Yankees 
you know, maybe maybe needed a shortstop. So they thought, okay, I'm Ed Rosario back to the Yankees. But a lot of Yankee fans didn't want him because they felt like he had already sort of not succeeded in New York, which is its sort of its own world. And so there's that aspect too. Like, no, we don't want a guy who's already been here and not quite made it. So um, I think there's a lot of judging going on from all aspects. Exactly. Yeah. All right, that's all of the trades. Uh, we're, we're going long, John. <laughs> wow, um, what a surprise. Yeah, it wouldn't be a, the 50th episode of BTV if we didn't continue to do what we've done since day one. Um, let's head over to the extensions here, and we're not going to cover all of them. Um, I have six notable extensions that I have written down here that happened within the two weeks. It's possible I missed one or two of those. And this isn't counting those... Um, you know, just bought out a couple years of arbitration type of extensions. Those aren't necessarily too relevant here. Uh, but I do have Manuel Margot, which I believe uh, the Braves bought out a year of arbitration and a free agent year. You mean the Rays? Option... Yeah, yeah, the Rays. Excuse me. Um, so that was the case with that one. We're not going to go in depth on that. It's Manuel Margot. But, but yep. for them, it, maybe it's it, it's partially a commitment to, to having something there for when Kiermaier walks after the year. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Ryan Presley extension with the Astros and that one's pretty much market value. We have his new surplus at 0.2 million. Uh, so very fair there. And then we have Garrett Whitlock with the Red Sox, which is pretty interesting because he's been used as, or last year he was a, a rule five pick that from the Yankees, <laughs> funny enough, and was used as a late inning arm, but he was a starting pitcher in the minors. And so this year they're starting to slowly stretch him out. They've been piggybacking him with Rich Hill who we know doesn't go too deep into games. And so it seems like the longer-term plan could be to use him in the rotation, or he could be that multi-inning fireman type out of the bullpen. Either way, it's a it's a former Rule 5 guy who wasn't a huge prospect who's now getting a, a very sizable contract commitment that, that's going to be good for him regardless of how, how his career turns out. So uh, that one makes a lot of sense. Uh, but there's three big ones we got to talk about. And let's, we're starting with Jose Ramirez, who has been a huge trade candidate, all of the trade buzz around him for years now. And John and I have both been kind of banging this drum of, it it just doesn't make sense. Like, especially, especially like at the, at last deadline or last off season, where his value was just way too high. It was in triple digits. And it's like, it doesn't make sense. Guys like this don't get traded. You would have to give up so much to get equal value here. Plus, the, the the Guardians, Cleveland, they've been somewhat competitive this whole time. You know, there there are some valid complaints to be made about the way they spend their money or, or choose not to, I guess. <laughs> and kind of the lack of postseason success that's come with that. But they've been a competitive team. And so they're, and they're, they've been a competitive team with a strong farm system. And so there hasn't been too much of an incentive to move Ramirez especially if you figured they're having a, tr- a tough time getting market value for him because he was so valuable this offseason was when it started to seem like maybe a possibility maybe starting to be possibility because with just a couple years of control remaining his value was down to 73.7 million which is still very high but but tradable to some teams you know the more, more teams are, are willing to meet that price are able to meet that price in, in prospects and young major leaguers um, and so it led to speculation about this offseason or maybe the deadline or maybe next offseason or, or just it happening soon. Uh, but instead, they finally did it. They extended him. 
and it's it, it reads as a little bit below market to me. I'm going to pull up the exact values or exact contract value right now, uh, but it reads as slightly below market value. Uh, for a guy of his talent, but he does get the no trade clause, so he's going to be staying in Cleveland for the bulk of his career here, and that that seems like it was important to him. So it, it's structured a little bit strangely, and it and it kind of overwrites his uh, his current contract, his current contract years. Um, it ends up guaranteeing the 26 million uh, via his two options that he had remaining, and tax on 124 million over five the next five years. So ends up guaranteeing. I'm sorry, I'm reading this poorly. It ends up guaranteeing 141 million over seven seasons. There we go. Um, so it'll pay in 22 million in 2022, 14 million in 2023, then 17, 19, 21, 23, and 25 million in 2022. So a little bit low there. And what it ends up doing is it ends up essentially doubling his trade value <laughs> by our site. So now he's up to 140. I just clicked off of it. 146 points. Point mm-hmm. seven, right? Yeah. Which once again untradeable, even if not for the no trade clause. Uh, but it's just it's another case similar to the Ketel Marte one where John and I discussed it in the past, and I've had this gut feeling that it just doesn't make sense to trade him, and it, and it's nice to see the team kind of uh, kind of agreeing <laughs> with that sentiment and and, and kind of make sure I'm I'm still in line here and I'm I'm my my head's in the right spot here. Um. Uh, what are your what's your take on just you know the whole will he will will he will he not be traded part of it as well as the value of the deal that he ended up with seemingly being a bit low so okay push came to a shove obviously if you read i think it was ken rosenthal who wrote kind of the insider story on it um that um he knew he was about to get traded there were like very active talks going on particularly with the padres we've already talked about um who had some trade capital to work with i mean if they had moved him to the padres we would have expected you know probably cj abrams as the lead piece given the values or maybe some combination of Hassel and capisano and gore or something like that um and that would have been a you know a good deal for both sides i think um um, but, you know, <clears throat> according to Rosenthal, he woke up one morning and said, you know what, I want to stay here. And so what they ended up doing is splitting the difference. So he, he basically left a bunch of money on the table. Now, it guarantees him a lot. You know, over you have to also remember that um, when he signed his original deal with Cleveland, um, you know, he was coming. He wasn't a, um, a high profile signee from uh when he was when he was prospect, you know, and, you know, he wasn't making much money. So he sort of, I think, you know, probably undersold his talents. But then once he really established himself, clearly he was, you know, he was worth way more than that. Uh, but having said that, um, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who needs top dollar is, is what I'm thinking. So I think he he's sort of a level headed guy. He doesn't need a lot of attention, doesn't need a lot of hoopla. You know, he, he he's getting enough money and he wants to stay where he wants to stay. He wants to settle down with his family. And I think good for him. So and obviously from the Cleveland perspective, you know, because he left a lot of money on the table, there's a lot of surplus now. So that's why if you multiply it over the seven years, you know, we end up with a lot of a lot of surplus value. So he doesn't seem to care that he left a lot of money on the table. He is where he wants to be. And I think the Guardian said, well, OK, <laughs> we'll take that deal. And and, you know, because they have a tendency to try to be competitive every year while they're sort of doing a little bit of the raise thing but a little bit their own way of just kind of next man up kind of stuff um so so they're very sort of value conscious and very sort of sustainability conscious if you will you know trying to keep a uh, reasonably competitive team 
you know, in, in place under sort of, you know, some very, fairly tight budget constraints, but doing it smartly. And so I think it, it's a win for both sides. Uh, obviously, with that contract, he's not going to get traded anytime soon, but it's fun to think about, you know, how much surplus value he has right now in theory, which is basically double what it was before. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's not like he's in this case like Ronald Acuna necessarily was in Ozzy Albies where they did sign for lower internationally. I mean, I mean Ramirez did, but he then got that first extension, which was obviously below market rate. Um, it's not like those situations where for Acuna and Albies, that was their first contract and they took the below market rate anyway. Ramirez to this point has made some money, but it still isn't nearly what he would have made if he had just gone year to year arbitration and then into free agency. So he is still kind of behind the ball on that. And not to say that he needed to take a below a below rate deal here to, to secure himself. Uh, but it, it potentially explains that more, you know, he, he doesn't have as much stocked up as he might have otherwise. And so maybe he's a little bit more willing to just, maybe the number that he did get now looks bigger to him because of that. I don't know if I explained that well. <laughs> um, yeah. In in general, I think this is a very similar case to Ketel Marte, just on a much larger scale with a more talented and, and valuable player. Um, Jose Ramirez seems to ride this interesting line where he's been the most underrated player in baseball for a few years now. And a lot of the time when that happens, a guy is underrated and he gets so much buzz for being underrated that he either becomes properly rated or overrated. We kind of saw that with Bryce Harper a little bit where it went the other way. He started out overrated because he was hyped as so overrated. He became pretty underrated. And now I think he's, he's pretty properly rated. He won the MVP last year, Yeah. Uh, but I think Ramirez remains very underrated. And I, I hope, I hope sometime soon the baseball world at large kind of comes around on him because he's a fantastic player. Yeah. And he's, you know, he, He's still not even 30 yet, and he rakes, right? And and studies have shown that, you know, he's he's either going to be uh, a third baseman or a second baseman uh, longer term. Either way, the bat will play. And generally speaking, those types tend to hold up a little bit longer than some other types, you know, where there's a lot of sort of, you know, diving and, and, and um, you know, and pushing your body a little bit too much. I mean, maybe there is a third base a little bit, but if he moves to second, it'd be fine. Uh, but, you know, in other words, he'll be worth his money and then some uh, over the course of the seven-year deal. Definitely. All right, two other ones that we don't need to go too in-depth on here, but I just think they're they're a pair of interesting cases. Uh, let's start with let's start with Cabrian Hayes. Uh, so he agreed to a, was it eight years, $70 million extension? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, you, th- you look at Cabrian Hayes, it's so early in his career, and he has the potential to be such an impact player with how fantastic of a glove he has at third base and what we saw from him in 2020 offensively. The sky's the limit for him. And so it really seems like he's selling himself short here a bit, but I, I think it's, I think it makes sense. I mean, there there's obviously somewhat left on the table here. We have his new... Uh, surplus value at 84.5, which means theoretically that's what he's leaving on the table. And it's definitely a case where, you know, he has one good year, that number could could double <laughs> if he has the kind of year that he could. Like, he could be Nolan Arenado, like young Nolan Arenado with, with just how good the defense is and, and the kind of the 
he's more of a gap hitter for as far as power goes, but mm-hmm. he could be a talented hitter as well. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of it, when you the earlier you sign a deal like this, the more uncertainty you're baking in, and the more you're taking a lower rate to guarantee yourself the money while the team is taking on some level of risk uh, of of whether you pan out as a player or not. And I think we saw a little bit of that in 2021, not being his best offensive season, and he did have some injuries in 2021 as well. And there was actually a, a scary moment with with this extension where it had been reported but it wasn't official until the physical and then he went out and injured his thumb on opening day before his physical was taken (laughs) but it it ended up being a very minor injury and he ended up you know the deal was official he he passed through it and, and no changes or anything and so i mean it's nice to see the pirates making a sizable commitment to a young player and and kind of sticking their foot in the dirt and saying like yes we've been rebuilding yes it's been bad but we have studs here now we our young talent is starting to arrive and we're going to invest in them that's a good sign in general and it it could be a sign of things to come with a guy like brian reynolds or or any of their future prospects that that start to make it in the bigs um but I, I think just the uncertainty, as well as just any player whose value is so strongly derived from their defense, uh, defense doesn't tend to get paid quite as well as offense does, whether it's in extensions or in the free agent market or in trades, defense isn't quite as highly valued. And especially for a guy who's had an injury history and plays a demanding position at third base where he's going to go all out. We talked about it with Arenado before, where there's a little bit of injury risk inherent there. He's going to be diving back and forth for the next eight years of this contract. So I, I think it's it's maybe a little bit low, but reasonable. Yeah, I mean, look, if there's uncertainty on both sides, right? You know, the team's taking a risk, which is why they're underpaying him. You can't assume that he's going to, you know, hit his hit all of his marks, right? There's he's still too young, and you you know don't know. But on paper, you would you know we think he's worth 154 million, and he's getting 70. Um, but that 154 million comes with a caveat, which is that he still hasn't really established himself yet. You think he's going to? He has all the tools. He's got some signs that he will. If even if the defense is a floor and you get whatever offense you get from it, you're not going to lose that much money. So that sort of that's baked into the surplus, right? So at minimum, you figure, okay, well, <clears throat> he's probably worth 70 million over eight or nine years based on the defense. That's what the team figures. And what he figures is, oh my gosh, I've just started, and this is a lot more money than I've ever seen. And what if I get injured? What if it's worse than a thumb? And I'm guaranteed money for life. You know, 70 million is nothing to sneeze out. So they both sort of give a little bit on each side. And you see these these types of deals with really young players becoming a little bit more common, even ones that haven't established themselves. And the tale of Evan White and the Mariners um, signing a deal really before he'd even, you know, uh, come up. And now he's probably thankful that he has because he's had so many injuries and, you know, he's done nothing at the major league level. And, you know, even if his career is over, he's still getting the money he signed with that. So you, from the player perspective, they got to look at the, that type of scenario as well. So I think each each side gives a little bit and wins a little bit here. For sure. All right, the last one I want to just briefly touch on is J.P. Crawford, shortstop for the Mariners. And we've had him as an above-value player, as a fairly valuable player, I I, I should say at least, um, for a while now, and and gotten a little bit of pushback on that. And sometimes it's like, really, is he he worth this much? 
Uh, but Crawford is a is a great defensive shortstop, and he's a solid hitter. If not not a huge power guy, and he's not going to blow you away, but he's been a decent hitter, and he just does a lot of things well. And those types of players are valuable. And so he agreed to a, uh, a contract extension with tax on four additional years and forty six million dollars. So it'll be fifty one million dollars total when you count uh, his twenty twenty two contract that he had already agreed to. So five years, fifty one million, and that's just a really it's a really fair contract. You know, this isn't one where I necessarily foresee, like, like I said with Hayes, where if he has a big year or two, that that surplus value that he's currently at could double. With, with, excuse me, with Crawford, with uh, where his value is right now and, and factoring in that new contract, we have his surplus at 36.9. I don't necessarily see this being a case where he could really, I mean, I, I suppose he could, but I don't see where it is a case where he's likely to, have a huge offensive year and that just explodes, but I have it being a pretty reasonable deal. You know, this is a guy who was a former top prospect, but didn't quite develop as linearly as he had hoped, as the Phillies had hoped. And so he, he gets traded to the Mariners and they've given him plenty of chances. And now he's developed into a really valuable player for them. And so he'll be paid like that valuable player. And even if he's leaving a little bit on the table, you know, it's 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 certainty. It's like we've mentioned, it's the trade-off there. Um, so I just wanted to mention this one because it's interesting and it kind of, it vindicates our values. Is, is vindicates the right word? <laughs> it it uh, reaffirms. Validates. There we go. Validates. Yeah. Yes, validates. There we go. Uh, it validates the, the surplus value that we had for him originally in saying that, yes, the the Mariners do believe that he is a valuable player as well, valuable enough to commit $51 million to him. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of baseball experts will say, you know, if you've got a great glove at shortstop, that's the most, you know, valuable defensive position on the field. As long as you have an average bat, you've got a lot of value. And J.P. Crawford seems like the card-carrying case for that, you know. Um, But the bat has been improving as well. And if you look at his F-war numbers, you know, he went from 1.3 in 2019. Now, the 2020 season was shortened. He only had 1.1. But if you say, you know, just double that, and then that's improvement, right? 2.2-ish, maybe 2 to 3 war players for that shortened year. And then he was 3.1 last year. So he's been steadily improving year over year. And, you know, actually in 2021, his, his WRC plus was 103. So he's slightly above average as a hitter. He's going, he went from 87 to 95 to 103. So not only was the defense very strong, but the offense was steadily improving as well to the point where now he's a slightly above average bat with a great glove. And, oh, by the way, he's now a 27, which is typically the, the prime year. So you're getting, you know, the next few years of his prime where he's going to be at least based on the defense, a two war player, probably three, you know, for a reasonable cost. So that's a good deal. And that's, that's a player any team could, could use. I think, you know, sometimes guys like him, you know, Dansby Dan Swanson comes to mind. Who's not a great shortstop, but a good enough shortstop, like good enough shortstops are really valuable. And so this is a case that says, okay, yeah, they are. Early in the off season, the, the Mariners, vocally committed to leaving Crawford at shortstop, even though they were pretty involved in, in the markets for a lot of the top free agent infielders. And they didn't end up getting any of, you know, Story or Correa or anybody like that. Uh, but there, there was definite interest, especially in Story down, down to the wire. 
but it, it kind of spoke volumes of what they think of him that so early in the off season, they were so clearly and so definitively saying, no, he's our shortstop. If we pick anybody else up, they're going to have to move because we, we like him there and he's going to stay there. He's an important part of the team. He's, he's not going to the bench. He's not going to second or third base. He's our shortstop. I, I think that was pretty telling early on. And then this, this contract is, is just another factor in his favor. And, as we're recording this, it's been a little over a week, and he's already put up 0.6 F4. He's got a 2.216 WRC+. plus. He's hot as a firecracker right now, so maybe he likes it too. Exactly. Best shortstop in baseball, right? <laughs> All right. Let's go to the one guy that we want to talk about who didn't get extended, and there was a whole lot of buzz about this, a whole lot of differing opinions. Aaron Judge. So... We have his current surplus for the one year remaining on his deal at 35.4, which is which is obviously quite high. And we're not we're not in any way suggesting that he is a trade candidate. Aaron Judge realistically isn't going anywhere. Um, I'm pretty sure even if the Yankees, it isn't reasonable, I don't think, to expect the Yankees to completely bottom out to tank and not even be you know within somewhat striking distance of a playoff spot come the deadline especially given the extra play playoff spot they're a talented team they're not going to fall that far down even if they disappoint it'll be like 500 or better and they'll be in the mix and because they're the yankees they'll make some moves they will not be trading aaron judge okay getting that getting that out of the way very clear uh but he was very uh, once again very vocal here (laughs) where brian cashman himself announced the offer that they had made to judge and I'm pulling it up right now, but it was a it was a fairly seemingly fairly reasonable offer for a top player who is getting up there in years and has some trouble staying on the field. Uh, so the Yankees offered him a seven year, two hundred and thirteen point five million dollar extension beginning next season. So he would still um it would still it would be seven years in addition to the 2022 season that he's already under control. And so that would have been a thirty point five million dollar average annual value which is which is fairly substantial for taking him into his age 37 season and he's obviously he's a superstar he's a fantastic player he might even be a little bit underrated by the baseball world at large because you know he's a he's a great defender he's a great all-around hitter but he just hasn't been able to stay on the field and it's not reasonable to project that to get better like that, that's not <laughs> health isn't a skill that ages all that well. So I, I understand if it's if it's a situation where he wanted more, he really thinks he can get more. He wants to keep negotiating and and they just gave him kind of a take it or leave it kind of thing. But I don't know. I, I'm a little surprised he didn't. I'm not saying I'm not going to go ahead and, and make his financial decisions before him. I'm not going to say he should have agreed to it. Because if you're betting on yourself and you you believe you're going to stay healthy this year, I think he reasonably and pretty comfortably gets more money than that. I am surprised he didn't, though. Yeah. I am surprised he didn't accept that or or something close to it. Yeah. And as are most people in the baseball world, it was a reasonable offer. But, you know, I tweeted something about it that day when the news broke that is actually a little bit light. And that's because they didn't touch the, uh, the salary this year. This year, he's got, as you mentioned, about $35 million in surplus value. The, the ensuing years, which would have been the years that the extension covered, 
um, added up to about fair value. Um, so he's leaving money, he would be leaving money on the table this year, but the rest of the years would be fair. So I think, you know, just purely based on the math, it comes up a little bit light. Maybe he wanted to say, okay, well, make up for the, the the fact that I'm underpaid this year and we have a deal. Maybe he was playing hardball from that standpoint. So, you know, if you if you think he's over, um, if you think he's he's got 35 million in surplus value, which we do, then that's that's the gap. He basically said, okay, pay me another 35 and we got a deal because that's that's how it comes out in terms of the math. Now the the that. Uh, calculation also sort of estimates the amount of decline he would have, both in terms of performance decline and, to your point, the injury risk. Now, he's a big guy, right? And big guys tend to get hurt more because they have to lug that big frame around and there's more impact and more, you know, it, you know, the harder they fall. So, um, but that's all sort of baked in as well. And even so, you know, it, it still came out you know, a little bit light because that bat is so tremendous. You can, and I'm not even talking about the marketing value as well. You know, you've got Judge's Corner and you've got all these, all these Yankee fans with shirts that say Judge on them. You've got that whole marketability side. I don't know if he was thinking about that, but perhaps that was a factor as well. Uh, knowing that he has a lot of value to the team from that standpoint that maybe he's not getting credit for. So, you know, I'm, well, my point is that, is that on paper, yes, he could probably get a better deal. Uh, from a common sense point of view, I probably would have taken it if I was him as well. Yeah, and the, the 2022 salary angle of it is, is a weird one to tackle because he, he hasn't agreed to a 2022 contract yet. Uh, and, and there's a huge gap between the arbitration offerings. The Yankees submitted 17 and he submitted 22, which is a lot. <laughs> that, that $5 million gap is actually the largest arbitration gap ever. <laughs> Um, so, so the fact that there was that much disagreement about this year really kind of sets the stage for how, I guess, how differently they value him as a player and, and going forward. Um, and just adding in a couple more things that were reported that the Yankees were willing to include opt-outs uh, within the contract. And, you know, that it, it, the way this is phrased is opt-out possibilities. So it's maybe not as simple as just here's a straight opt-out. Um but that that plays a monetary role as well that that increases potentially the value of that extension even further i haven't been able to find any details on how the extension offer would have handled his 2022 salary because usually with deals like this it's you are also negotiating that first year and, and there's still a chance we get his 2022 salary negotiated an agreement between the two sides before an arbitration hearing but given the size of the gap and given how the longer term extension talks didn't didn't come anywhere that would be a little bit surprising maybe so we so we might be headed toward a, a fairly contentious and impactful arbitration hearing here yeah and that's not a good look for anybody especially the yankees so i'm sure they wanted to avoid that but i don't know i i got the feeling they could have worked something out if they had tried a little bit harder maybe just to avoid that um they you know i i'm stuck on the fact that they didn't close the gap with this year's salary. I think that's what he's stuck on as well. It's an interesting situation across baseball with the in-season arbitration uh, hearings that, that there is potential for across the league because technically they're not, not technically, just, just by rule, they're not allowed to reference 2022 performance when the, the arbitrators aren't allowed to reference it and neither are the team or the player. 
when arguing in favor or against the the arbitration salary decision. But if a guy, if a pitcher was going to an arbitration hearing and, and he has Tommy John and he goes in there in a sling, how does the arbitrator not yeah subconsciously at least take that into account or yeah. if if a guy's really tearing the cover off the ball this year it's it's a tr- sticky situation that i'm surprised more teams didn't try to avoid uh, it seems like we have a decent number of players who could be headed to arbitration this year and we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out i guess yeah now one one note on that these players are getting paid by rule they're getting paid what the team offered them so in judge's case Right now, he's getting paid, you know, his his portion of seventeen million dollars as the season goes on. If he wins arbitration, then he would get get the compensation difference of that. But it, it, at least he's getting at least seventeen. Um, now, um, I will. I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but but um, there was a little bit of that sort of talk about the Brian Reynolds situation in Pittsburgh, where they hadn't agreed on it, but they finally did. And coming on the heels of the Cabrian Hayes contract. I'm pleased that the Pirates, you know, also resolved that situation, made him have he bought out two years of his four years left so that at least they could avoid arbitration. So good for them. Right. And there were reportedly discussions of taking him longer than that. Um, and, and who knows, maybe that lays the groundwork for future revisiting of those discussions. Uh, most most players like to handle that stuff in the off season if they can. Uh, so we probably won't hear about that for a while. And And who knows, maybe he just gets traded this july and and that's that but but at least they've they worked it out and there's cost certainty now exactly yeah all right then one last bit of news we need to get to from the last couple weeks and that's the the ongoing frankie montas trade rumors so we've discussed this at length in the past we're not going to go too deep into it here but we have montas at 39.6 million in median trade value he's made two starts this season one not great on opening day and one very good against the rays in his second outing uh he's he's very clearly the top starting pitching target and the white Sox are an obvious landing spot for him in in some respects given that they've had a lot of injuries and underperformance in their starting rotation and they're a win now team who's facing a little bit of heat from the rest of their division uh, after after the off seasons that teams like detroit and minnesota had and so you, you see why that makes sense but Montas is a difficult fit, and and there were some interesting reports that came out, and it's hard. They came from interesting sources, and so it's hard to fully trust the validity of the reports. But one name that has been mentioned coming from the White Sox to Oakland would be Andrew Vaughn. And so what we've heard is that the A's want Vaughn, and the White Sox aren't budging yet. And looking at the rest of the White Sox, I believe, did we have them 30th in our farm system rankings, or were they 29th? They were, they were either 29th or 30th. Um, oh, they're dead last. They're 30th. Yes, yes, that's what I thought. Uh, very weak farm system. And that's not necessarily an indictment on the White Sox because obviously they've graduated a lot of talent, you know? Dylan Seas, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Michael Kopech, uh, Garrett Crochet. They, they have plenty of talent that's made it to the big leagues. In some cases, having a bad farm is a good thing if, if it's also coming with... Not, not a good thing, but it's a sign of... of good development that has occurred in the past because all of these guys have made it to the bigs. Yeah. You, you've, you've and, graduated all your capital is now at the big league yes. level, which is where it should be the most productive. Yes, exactly. So not in any way saying that the white Sox are bad. <laughs> That's not what we're coming at here, but they don't have a farm. 
And so if they are truly absolutely refusing to trade Andrew Vaughn, who we have at 35.3 and, and makes sense, even, you know, even if it's one for one, it's, it's accepted by the model as 35.3 for Vaughn, 39.6 for Montas. That's within our margin of error for sure. It would make some sense. But if they're just full on rejecting any inclusion of Vaughn, then your options are kind of limited. It's it's either you entertain the idea of Kopech, which A, might not be super attractive to Oakland because he has only four years of control remaining, and B, is going to be even less attractive to the White Sox because they need pitching. They're not going to move him right now. Right. So that's one option. Or the other option is just trade your top five prospects instead. <laughs> so you can either give yeah. up a Vaughn and maybe a couple secondary pieces, lower value, or you can completely obliterate what is left of your bad farm. And, and that's <laughs> just looking at it right now. I have Gavin Sheets at 11.8, first base prospect, uh, who I, I believe he's still prospect eligible. Uh, but either way, he, he makes some chance, some sense, excuse me, as a, as a trade candidate. He's big league ready and there isn't necessarily a full-time spot for him. Uh, so there's him. There's, uh, is it Carson Montgomery shortstop at 7.6 million? Colson, Colson. Uh, who was their 2021 first round pick? Mm-hmm. Um, West Cath, third base prospect, 7.6 million. They have another shortstop prospect. We don't have the first names right here. Jose Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Jose uh-huh. Rodriguez, gotcha, at 7.6 mm-hmm. million. And then Yuelki Cespedes at 6.9 million. So that all, those top five prospects add up to 41.5 million, which is pretty even with the Montas 39.6. So even if you, you know, haggle it and say, oh, they can keep one of those guys and go with a couple lesser guys in like the three to four range and get the values even closer, whatever. They're still giving up four of their top five prospects to really make mm-hmm. this work. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 there's a reason this deal hasn't happened yet. If, if the White Sox are truly saying no on Andrew Vaughn, then I don't think there's a deal that both sides would agree to here. That, that, that's kind of the way it looks right now. I mean, if the A's, the A's will ask for something like this with their with a lot of their top guys, and the White Sox will say, no, we can't afford to trade all of our prospects here because we might have other needs that we have to address at the deadline. So that's where kind of this impasse comes and why a deal hasn't been made yet, it seems like. Yeah, I, I think the A's are holding out for fair value because, you know, to your point, he's the only quality starting pitcher left on the market, and the only way to require him is what is via trade and there's you know free agency's over so if you need a starting pitcher yeah you gotta call the a's and they're not gonna give him away cheaply so um and you know i'm not sure if they would like this you know if they don't have vaughn i'm not sure they want a quantity over quality package now maybe because you know if you look at their previous trades you know, they got four guys for Olsen. They got, uh, you know, four guys for Chapman. Um, you know, this is their second biggest trade chip after Olsen. And they're, you know, and they're rightly so. You know, they should hold out for a, a package similar to what they got for Olsen. So they need a quality lead piece. And the White Sox don't have one. I mean, all these guys you mentioned are in the sevens-ish, you know. And so um, it's hard to see. I mean, the A's could use a little bit of quantity as well as quality. But I think they would prefer... A different style of package. I think that's why Olsen went to the Braves instead of the Yankees because they like particular that particular mix is uh, better. You know, with a high quality lead uh, uh, piece in Shea Langoliers and a secondary piece in Pache and a couple other pieces. So that's the kind of deal I think they're looking for in Montaz. And you don't quite see the fit here with the White Sox, so they might go elsewhere. 
And it's a little bit frustrating because Vaughn just seems like such a perfect fit for the A's and such a perfect player for the White Sox to trade. As I, as I mentioned, White Sox fans aren't too happy with how he's been handled. He's hitting well but not playing every day, which yeah, I can see some frustration there potentially from him as well as, as from the fan base. From the A's side of it, yeah, maybe this, the clock doesn't quite line up. He already has his service time started, so he only has five years of team control left, and every other player the A's acquired has six full seasons remaining. So maybe you can quibble on that a bit. But right now the A's have nothing at first base. They're mm-hmm. they're shuffling around the likes of Billy McKinney and Stephen Vogt and Jed Lowry and Sheldon Noisy and, and Christian, uh, and Christian Bethencourt <laughs> and... It's 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 a oh. yeah. first base yeah. is a is a treat in Oakland right now. Yeah, Matt I mean, Vaughn, it clearly left yeah. a vacuum there. Oh yeah, but Vaughn obviously slots in right there. He's a local guy. He went to mm-hmm. Berkeley, Cal Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it just and, and it seems like the A's motivation. You know, I mentioned the clock stuff earlier, but a lot of the players they did acquire are already with the team. Kevin Smith, Christian Pache. Um, even some of the pitchers, Adam Aller, Zach Logue just made the team, Kirby Sneed. So so a lot of these guys that they did acquire are MLB ready, or in the case of guys like Langoliers, will be MLB ready very soon. So it's it's been very clear from, from the first trade of this, from the Olsen deal, that the A's are trying to get back to, comp- to being competitive soon. And what better guy for that than a potentially really good first base bat in Vaughn, local kid, it makes all the sense for them to get him and maybe another smaller piece or two from Montas. And, and it makes a ton of sense for the White Sox, who obviously love Jose Abreu. He's a free agent after the year, but you figure they're a team that's going to be willing to 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 pay up for him even as he reaches his late 30s here because he's just meant so much to the organization. And they still have sheets in the back as, as, a, as a DH type, as a fill-in at first base when he needs to. And like we mentioned before, there's they are not a team that has any issues developing left-handed sluggers. So, or <laughs> just not even left-handed specifically, but these just big lumbering slugging types to to replace them. And they have more than enough offense, even if they don't. So, I I get the hesitancy, but if you're the White Sox, your window is right now. And I mean, yes, they have these guys locked up for a while, uh, up and down their roster, the Luis Roberts, the the Eloy Jimenez is the Juan Moncada's Tim Anderson's those guys are all locked up for a little bit but they're not gonna in most cases I mean Robert has I think Robert's a superstar but <laughs> the others they're they're for the most part not gonna get any better as they get older and, and into their late 20s early 30s and the pitching staff isn't what it used to be or what it looked like it was and Lance Lynn won't be there forever and neither will Giolito unless they lock him up and so I Montas would be a great fit and he even comes with an extra year of control so it's not you know giving up such a massive piece for a rental so I I think they should make a deal like that is what I'm saying oh my god if you look at roster resources in the rotation right now it's Dylan Cease and then Kopech who was a reliever last year Vince Velasquez who was a journeyman Dallas Keuchel who's really fallen off you know the map in terms of what he's not what he used to be he's their fourth starter and Jimmy Lambert that's your rotation, and you've got Lance Lynn on the IL, you've got Giolito on the IL, and even if those guys were healthy, you know, it's Giolito, Lynn, and Cease. You've got three proven ones. Maybe Kopech delivers as a starter, and that's four. You still got a hole. You know, you still got Vince Velasquez or Keiko as your fine. So you're, even in the best case scenario, which never happens, you're going to need a Montas badly. So it's really on them 
to kind of bite the bullet here, I think. And it's not going to be the most painful train in the world. Yes, it's painful to give up a bond, but you know, you've got other priorities. And these types of of you know wins matter, you know, just as much in the early part of the season as they are late in the season. So if you're going to be struggling, and maybe they're waiting to see how how this this uh, bit of a patchwork rotation, uh, you know, nets out. But you can't imagine, you know, Velasquez and Lambert, you know, <laughs> delivering all that much. No offense to them, but um, you know, they're going to lose a few games, and they're going to wish they had Mont- traded for Montas after afterwards. So I think they should make the deal. They sure could use a guy like Carlos Rodon. Yeah, what about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen some, uh, some consternation know. about that as well. Yeah. All right. As as per usual, we went a little bit long, so now we're we're gonna we're gonna go through this best of BTV segment, and I'm not gonna say we're gonna rush it, but we're gonna we'll pick up the pace a little bit. So yep. I picked out ten trades uh, that that were notable for the site in some way or another. And let's just run through them. This is in chronological order. This isn't quite going back to when the site began. We we debuted with the site at the 2019 trade deadline around there. Um, and our log currently goes back to the 2019 offseason, which is totally reasonable because it, we were a little bit messy early on. <laughs> you know, they, 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 it, we had it, some it was, kinks to work out. <laughs> it was an open beta. Yes, exactly. So that, that first trade deadline was more of a trial run than anything else, but... Looking back to November, or not November, excuse me, but just looking back to uh, that first offseason that we were going, the, the 2019 to 2020 offseason, the Corey Kluber trade to the Texas Rangers. So at the time, this one wasn't all that close by our values at, at, the, at the time. So it was $2.7 million in median trade value for Corey Kluber, and the Rangers received half a million in cash to cover his reassignment bonus. And in exchange, they sent outfielder Delino to Shields at $8 million and reliever Emmanuel Classe at $1.7 million to Cleveland. So it was 3.2 to the Rangers, 9.7 to Cleveland. And so obviously, big gap there. But there's one important takeaway from this, and that's that's Kluber. So this we have this, originally we had this as an overpay. Uh, when we looked back on it with some of the adjustments that we've made since then, and updated the values, it was much closer. It was Kluber at 5.2, DeShields at 1.6, Classe at 3.2. So it was in total 5.7 to the Rangers, 4.8 to Cleveland, accepted. So I want to get that out of the way first. But the big takeaway here, above all else, was that Kluber went for a lot less than the general public expected him to. Uh, people were seeing the name value of Corey Kluber and how he was an ace for so many years for Cleveland and oh my goodness, the Rangers got this guy for a backup outfielder and a reliever? What's going on here? But even though we missed on that trade initially, we missed kind of in the right direction. We we had Kluber as being not worth a whole lot, and nobody else really saw that coming. And so this was a big, uh, I can only speak for personally how I felt, but it felt like a big confidence boost pretty early on that we had correctly evaluated that, yes, despite the name value, Kluber is expensive, and he's old, and he was injured. And those things all worked very heavily against him. And his performance was starting to decline a little bit before the trade. And so they really worked against him to kind of tank his trade value and and not make him some insanely valuable player that he once was. And so obviously we know what happened after that, that Class A is now a really exciting reliever for Cleveland, while Kluber only pitched a few innings for the Rangers before being hurt and out the rest of the season, which which also kind of validated our evaluation that the injury risk was a very real concern for a guy that old, and, and it ended up 
costing him almost that entire season. So yeah, uh, this one's just a, a notable one. It was probably the first notable time that our valuations really, really differed from the public's view on a guy and that a, a trade validated that opinion. I remember there were tweets saying, what, that's all they got. And people were beside themselves with like, what, that's all Kluber's worth. And I had written an article saying, yeah, he's not worth much. <laughs> and so I felt a little bit validated about that to those points, you know, because he'd been injured, he was ineffective, even going to the level of detail, like he had made some starts against some really bad teams and gotten pulled early. Like he just wasn't the same. And, you know, he was making a lot of money and there wasn't much, you know, uh, control left. So it was sort of a, a statement that, you know, hey, you know what, we're going to we're going to go out on a limb here and say, you know what, I know he's a big name, but he's not worth that much in surplus value. And most trades are based on surplus value because you got to take that contract, which comes with a lot of risk. And that's what proved to be happen, proved to happen. So um, we were a little off on the shields because um, that was before we made adjustments to like, okay, the fourth outfielders are not as valuable as we know now, but we didn't know as much then. We were pretty close on, on class A, uh, but we were right about Klu- on uh, Kluber. So uh, I'll, I'll call that a win, even though it was kind of an early days rusty one. We were, we were going the right direction. Yeah, it was certainly a formative trade in BaseballTradeValues.com's history. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Starling Marte twice. So first, the D-backs acquired him from the Pirates back in the 2019-2020 offseason. And they picked him up in exchange for a couple prospects. It was Leover, Piguero, and Brennan Malone. At the time, we had Marte worth $18.6 million, and they also picked up uh, $1.5 million in cash, so $20.1 total. Uh, and then sending to the Pirates was Piguero at 16, Malone at 7.5, as well as 0.25 million in international free agent space, international amateur free agent space, I, say, I should say. So 23.75 total. So there's a gap there of just 3.65. It's a very close deal. That on its own is, it felt good. Yeah, it's cool that we were right about this, this solid deal for, for an impact player, not a superstar and not a huge blockbuster, but we, we were in the neighborhood on this one, but where it kind of, uh, it, it became even cooler <laughs> was at the deadline when the D backs traded Marte to the Marlins. This one was, it was, it was the first instance of just like looking at the numbers and laughing for me, at least where we plugged the numbers in immediately when we heard about the trade and it was Starling Marte at $21.2 million, headed the Marlins in exchange for left-handed pitcher Caleb Smith, who we also had at exactly $21.2 million. Mm-hmm. And granted, there were a couple other pieces in here. There was Humberto Mejia at $0.9 million, and is that, yes, Luis, or excuse me, Julio Frias at $0.1 million. So there ended up being a gap of $1 million here. But it was just, there's something cool. There's something fun about the headliner of this very clear like headliner and a couple throw-ins type trade mm-hmm. being worth exactly as much as as the player he was traded for and and obviously this deal worked out a ton better for miami in the long run than it has so far at least for for arizona caleb smith hasn't been what they hoped he would be he's been a reliever and, and not a very good one at that and mejia and frias are really not much to speak of there as either whereas the marlins got some really good production out of Marte, and then they Flipped him for Jesus Lazardo in a trade that wasn't as well lined up according to our model as far as the value goes. Um, but at the time, it, it the value said it was dead even, and it and it happened. And so, always yeah. always really fun. 
it was fun. So it's it's fun to get you know one of them right on one player, and then to get two of them right on on the same player is like oh that that's cool. Um, yeah, and you know so two out of three is not bad for Sterling Marte. He, he got traded a lot. Caleb Smith at the time um, was kind of a hot commodity. He 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 there was a lot of buzz. He'd had that really good run when he was a starter. And um, at the time, he had a lot of years of control, so the rejections seemed to like him. He's clearly fallen off the map since then, but uh, at the time, that was a fair deal. So yeah, um, it was it was it was a nice feather in our cap at the time as well. Not the hugest trade of all, but it was nice to see that happen a couple times. And to slightly defend ourselves on the third Starling Marte trade, um, we had that as an overpay by Oakland, where they sent Lizardo one for one for for Marte. It was clear that they were pushing in all the chips they had left to try and make one last run at the postseason, and it didn't end up working out for them. But at the time, the consensus was like, wow, they got Luzardo for a rental? And that was kind of what our, what our values agreed on. Like, wow, that, that seemed like a high price for Oakland to pay. And it seemed it was, it's nice that industry consensus was along those lines, and obviously very, very early in the 2022 season. But Luzardo was just excellent against the Angels the other night and his velo's up, and he looked good in the spring, and it seems like he might be finding his form. Again, very early to say that, but if so, that even just kind of further <laughs> further clarifies that, yeah, it was it was an overpay by Oakland. That, that seems reasonable. Yeah, and they had to kick in a bunch of cash as well. Um, or Miami, I'm sorry, Miami had to kick in a bunch of cash to Oakland as well to cover Marte's salary because Oakland was on such a tight budget, so they were trying to compete on a budget and, and to get a... a you know, an impact player required that level of sacrifice. When that cash came in, that really narrowed the gap. So, uh, but yeah, we were right that Lazardo still had a, a fair amount of upside. And, and I think most people, reasonable people would agree. Yeah, definitely. So now let's move on to a bit of a weirder trade, you know, a little less traditional. It was where the Rangers picked up Nate Lowe from the Tampa Bay Rays. And we had Lowe at 17.7 million. This was the 2020 to 2021 off season. Uh, they picked up low at 17.7, as well as Jake Gunther, first baseman, at 0.2. And then Cash, or I believe that Cash just represents a player to be named later. Hmm. Um, so we just had that estimated at 0.1 at the time. In exchange for prospects Heriberto Hernandez at 11 million, Oslavis, that's a fun name, Oslavis <laughs> Basabe, at 5.4 and alexander ovayes at 1.5 so this one again nearly perfect obviously there's a bit of a a bit of an area there with the cash placeholder for the player to be named later um but we had 18 million headed to the rangers and 17.9 to the rays and why this one stands out to me is a after the padres the rays are the team we miss on the most just because the rays do their own thing so much and they're so confident in their own evaluations that they're things like the Willie Adamas trade, which was way off by values that it, and, and maybe, maybe they regretted a little bit since Adamas has been so effective for the Brewers, but they picked up a couple really good arms and drew Rasmussen and JP fire eyes. And they were guys that they liked and that they wanted. And so they just did it and didn't care. <laughs> or I don't know if they didn't care about what public values would think, or if they just believed so confidently in their values that said it was a good trade for them. But whatever the case may be, and given just kind of their constant roster churn, they're a hard team to really nail every time. And so it's really cool to see that a trade like this was nearly perfect with them. Plus, it's just it's such a it's a high value tr 
moderate value trade, you know, 18 million going in each direction, but without any true, any huge names. So like, you know, it, it, it could have reasonably been expected at the time that we were high on Nate Lowe because, you know, he's not a huge prospect. He's a first baseman without, you know, necessarily the power that people expect out of first baseman. Or you could say that we were high on Hernandez, which, you know, he was a catching prospect who wasn't a great catcher and, and so on and so forth. Like, these were names that it wasn't it wasn't as simple as you know yes starling Marte, he's a good player on a one-year deal his value will be somewhere in this territory that makes sense you know there, there it seemed like a bunch of no-name guys but it still came together and was was very fair value um so this stood out to me for that yeah and i, I don't know if it was luck or not but one of the keys for me was Looking at Heriberto Hernandez in particular, who was the lead piece going back to Tampa, there's quite a disparity um, in prospect evaluations on him. Uh, Baseball America, for example, thinks he's a 40, and he's way down on their list. Whereas Fangraphs, Longenhagen in particular, thinks he's a 50. And he's so it's a difference of like 2.2 on one hand and 22.8 on the other hand. So that's why he ended up at 11. <clears throat> and it, as it turns out, that aggregation, that sort of weighted average model that we take from prospect evaluation sources publicly ends up being the right decision. Like if we'd have been off on one of those or the other, that would have been, that whole trade would have been off, right? But because we're aggregating in a weighted matter and kind of splitting the difference, it, it ended up being fair. So prospects are really hard to value because you're based on, you're, you're basically aggregating a weighted average of subjective opinions, right? And the more you do that and the more, knowledgeable and accurate those opinions or accurate is probably not the right word but you know the more sort of consistent they are you know the in the aggregate you know we're hoping to be reasonably close but this is an interesting case where they're far apart so you split the difference and we're still close so go figure yeah certainly now we move on to another blockbuster here uh, this was when the Mets acquired Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco from Cleveland. Lindor at 32.8, Carrasco at 8.8. So in total, that's 41.6 headed to New York. In exchange, they gave up Andres Jimenez at 28.3, Ahmed Rosario at 4.7. Uh, is that Josh Wolf? Excuse me. Josh Wolf at 3.3, and Isaiah Green at 4.5. So that's 40.8 headed to Cleveland. Just a gap of 0.8 there really close for such a big trade and and it's funny how things have gone since then with Ahmed Rosario's value increasing like we've talked about on, mm -hmm. on the podcast how he had a pretty strong season last year and he looks like he's potentially got a more stable place in their long-term plans than Jimenez did even though Jimenez was the, the, the very clear headliner of this deal um, but this is another one where the immediate reaction from a lot of people was like that's it like that's all they got but you know, it's very clear, you know, just a year of Lindor, that's not going to go for a ton. And Carrasco, similar case to Kluber, where he's got the name value and he was such an effective pitcher, but he's getting up there in age and the injuries and the money all really just work together to limit mm -hmm. his value. So mm -hmm. this was another win for us. I, I don't think there's any other way to put it. We we really, the model really nailed on pretty much all of these guys to, to get this so close. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind Lindor was making 21 million or something for his last year uh, before he signed his extension. So, you know, this was fairly generous. He kind of baked in that sort of star quality sort of premium as well for Lindor. Uh, Carrasco obviously had a lot of health issues. He had, <clears throat> uh, I believe, some um, 
you know, pretty serious you know, health issues out for a while. And it's just some, some um, I think, shoulder injury as well. So he, you know, I remember fans saying, what? They they got Carrasco too? Like Mets fans were like overjoyed, like as if, you know, he was such a big prize. But they didn't think about it that way. And, and you know, fan perception is very different than the way our model sees it and the way front offices see it. Our model is trying to what mimic what front offices do. And you know, fans see like, oh, big name player, oh, good player, and for for nobodies, oh, that's a great deal, we want it. And they don't think about the money, they don't think about the years of control, they don't think about the injury risks or the health issues or all the other things that play into it. But our model does, and front offices do, and so that's why this one I think worked out pretty well. I think in an interesting twist, Rosario and Jimenez have sort of flip flopped in value since then. Um, but if you made it, so if you made it the same uh, today, it would look a little bit different. But it was a fair value, definitely a fair trade at the time. Absolutely. And I, I just looking at what did happen here on the Mets side of things. Uh, I'm not going to say much about Francisco Lindor. Obviously, they they signed him to the big extension, which was kind of necessary for them at least to to feel better about this deal. And he's struggling his first year in New York. He's looking better this year. I have no. No concerns about him long term. I think it was just an off year in 2021, and, and he'll be back to being Lindor going forward. But Carrasco was nothing for them in 21. He, he made 12 starts, and they were very bad, and the rest of the season he was injured. And that's exactly why his value was what it was. There's a lot of risk there. He's 35 now, and he's off. He, he had one good start so far this season, and we'll see what the rest of the season uh, means for him. I believe he has, yeah, he has a vesting option for next season. So if things go well, he could remain with the team. But it, it, it's very clear that it, it's one of those scenarios where, like, yes, the the like the Kluber situation, the the worst case scenario. I don't even want to call it the worst case scenario, but the bad things that are injury risk and like age risk kind of baked in were were worried about came to pass and mm-hmm. and really proved why our value was what it was. Mm-hmm. all right i think this one I, I, in a way this one feels like the defining trade of mm-hmm. our of the model of the website of of us <laughs> and that's the mm-hmm. nolan Arenado deal this was take take everything we've said about the Corey kluber deal and and the lindor deal and the that's it that's all they got for that guy take all of that and turn it up to 11 because there was so much clownery on the Rockies after they made this deal where they sent Arenado to the Cardinals, and we had him at negative $43.7 million at the time, as well as $51 million in cash. And so $7.3 million headed to the Cardinals, and they got back just a hodgepodge of, of lower-value pieces. It's, it's Austin Gomber at uh, $3 million in value at the time. Mateo Heal at 2.9, Elihuris Montero at 4.1, Tony Losi at 1.1, and Jake Sommers at 0.1. So it ends up being 11.2 headed back to the, to the Rockies. So we had this trade as a bit of a win for them, <laughs> value-wise, mm-hmm. which, uh, let me tell you, was not <laughs> the public perception of this deal by any means. It was, oh my god, this team paid the Cardinals to take Nolan Arenado and get nothing in return. That was the reception. <laughs> and we've discussed this one at length since, so we're not, we don't need to go too far into it, but we, we talked about the injury history on Arenado, the age, the financial commitment that was involved there. 
And the fact that this trade can be viewed on its own as a fair deal for Colorado while still acknowledging mistakes that led them to this point. Like, you, you can't... You can separate the trade from the fact that they had to trade Arenado, right? Like, you can say that the extension was ill-advised if you want, and you can say that the ineptitude of the front office and their inability to build a contender around him and their inability to create an environment in which he wanted to stay, that can be... I feel like you can very heavily criticize the Rockies for that, but you shouldn't be criticizing them too much for what they did given those circumstances, if that makes sense, for, for the actual trade that happened. Because yeah, based on our values, yeah. it, it's fair. It's, it's, it works out in their favor slightly, even. Yeah, okay. So the mistake was signing him to that huge extension, it, which, which turned out to be an overpay, right? With so that's the why... no trade clause he didn't ask for? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he so he was overpaid, which is why they had to kick in the fifty-one million to to trade him, uh, because he'd come off a bad year. He was either injured or and or underperforming, and he was turning thirty. And you know, all the projections show decline, 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 decline. You know, and potentially more injury risk, more injury risk at thirty-five million a, a year or whatever he was making. So like that's that's a recipe for negative value, which is you know I remember. When I first noticed this, doing the, you know, looking at the numbers, I was like, hey, <laughs> you know what? I remember emailing you, Josh, and saying, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Arenado is seriously underwater here. And um, and you were like, yeah, I agree. Okay. So, like, we, we committed ourselves publicly to this. Um, and I wrote an article about it before this trade happened, a couple months before it. And it turns out we were right. Um, and I was surprised that they actually made the deal. Um, but the fact that they actually had to kick in the 51 did not surprise me because based on our numbers, that's what they had to do just to get anything back. And that's exactly what happened. So um, I feel like this was the big win for us. I don't know if it's as publicized perhaps as much as we should be. We should probably be waving our flag more. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're the ones who called Arenado. Um, and no, we're not crazy. You might think we're crazy, but we're not. And so, um, you know, I feel like we can, we can hang our hat on this one. <clears throat> yeah, it's... <laughs> Is it an overstatement to call it the BTV magnum opus? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it it was that's this is probably the most negative feedback we had ever received, right? Mm -hmm. Was mm -hmm. was for our valuation of mm -hmm. Arenado and people thinking we were just crazy on it, and mm -hmm. just the way it felt when that trade was being reported, and the entirety of the baseball world was losing their minds of oh my good <laughs> like every time every additional name was listed and the money came out they were all freaking out of what the rockies just got themselves hosed and you and i are sitting on the back end just smiling a little bit yep. more with each, uh -huh. with each name and each dollar <laughs> amount that came in and plugging it into the simulator and watching it work and that was uh, that was a time that that was yeah that was fun <laughs> that's a fun night definitely all right Dialing it back just a little bit, but still, I think a really interesting deal in in, in what it came out to be was the Elvis Andrews trade, uh, also from last off season, in which the A's acquired Andrews at negative twenty one point seven million, as well as backup catcher Aramis Garcia at one point two and thirteen point five million dollars in cash, so that's negative seven total headed to Oakland, in exchange for DH Chris Davis at negative twelve point two. Catcher Jonah Heim at 5.7 and Dane Acker, right-handed pitcher, at 0 0.5. So that was negative six headed to the Rangers. So this one just feels good because 
it's somewhat similar to the Arenado deal on a much, much lesser scale, obviously, where it's a deal that was made possible because of the contracts and cash included. And it's a deal the A's felt they needed to make. They didn't have a shortstop after they let Marcus Semien walk, and Davis was coming off a bad year and was by far the highest paid player on their roster. And so they came up with this very creative solution of let's take Elvis Andrews, his contract is underwater, but let's take him and the Rangers will pay his contract down a certain amount. We give them Davis, who might still have some field value for them, but we'll also give them a catcher we don't necessarily need in Haim and, and a reliever in Acker, and we'll get ourselves a better backup in RMS Garcia right now. So it was a really creative trade and a really interesting one when it was reported. Everyone just kind of collectively went, huh? And then <laughs> thought about it for a minute and went, okay, that makes sense. Uh-huh. But it's it's always exciting. It's always extra exciting to me when there's significant cash or a significant contract included in a trade and it still works out through the model. Because that's just such a it's an, it's a wrinkle, but it's such an essential piece of the puzzle. Is it's what, it's what we're all about. It's we're comparing the field value to how much they're being paid. And so, mm-hmm. especially when these guys are underwater, it's like, oh, are we misjudging how underwater they are, or or anything like that? But then when a trade comes through and it has them even like this, it it just feels really really good. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you don't see a it's not all that often you see two negative value contracts being traded like that um, for mutual need, but that's what this was. Um, the Rangers wanted time. Gays needed a shortstop. They made it work. Um, and the money, the money was a significant factor. And that's another thing, you know, fans don't typically think about the money. It's not their money. So you can't blame them, uh, but it is a very, very much a concern of front offices who are trying to manage the budgets. And so, you know, that's why our model factors it in so much. Um, so you got to look at that. I mean, even just we were talking about the Chris Paddock trade and the money that was sent from Minnesota to San Diego made it work because, you know, the money is essentially a replacement for the capital of the, of the player. So if that's a factor, then, you know, <clears throat> if that's what's being exchanged here, um, then, you know, the model is going to pick it up. I mean, after all, what you're doing is you're exchanging contracts. And so those contracts require commitments financially to each player. So you got to make the money work. So all of that is a long-winded way of saying, yes, the math works out in this particular case. And they happen to fill some need too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right, we have four more, and they're all much more recent. So we don't need to spend quite as long on them. But it kind of speaks, in my opinion, to how much the model has improved over time that I'm picking four more. You know, I, I looked through all the trade logs, and, and some of our closest ones have been the most recent ones. We're getting better at this. Yep, yep, <laughs> um, as so, you would hope. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the first one, the biggest deal of the 2021 trade deadline was the Dodgers acquiring Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. Had Scherzer at 12.1, Turner at 67.3. In exchange, they sent the Nationals' Kbert Ruiz catching prospect at 40.7, Josiah Gray right-handed pitcher at 28.5, uh, Gerardo Carrillo, at 1.6, he's a right-handed pitcher as well. And then outfielder Donovan Casey at 0.9. So it's 79.4 headed to the Dodgers, 71.7 to the Nationals. And so obviously there's a bit of a gap there in the values, but just based on the magnitude of the deal, it felt really good to get this one right, that it was yeah. it's, it's two huge name players headed to the Dodgers, one of them being a very, very valuable player in Turner based on trade value. Uh, and then we can you can discuss if you'd like the the extra complicated nature of the Scherzer side of it. I believe you wrote an article on that one as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it 
just with the big names going that way, and even the big names heading to the Nationals, Ruiz, Ruiz and Gray were two really big prospects for the Dodgers. Uh, but this one just felt really, really good to get even as close as we did. Would I have loved it to be a little closer? Of course. But with how huge it was, that's well within our margin of error, and it, and it, it felt good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, both in the 70s. I think we got a lot, got a lot of compliments on it because it was close enough. <clears throat> and, and uh, yeah, um, so Scherzer's whole thing was, you know, there was a whole bunch of deferred money. Um, early on in the model, by the way, I remember the Zank, Zach Greinke trade um, before we kind of knew what we were doing. Um, he had a lot of deferred money as well, but we didn't know whether at the time, whether the back, w- whether in a trade scenario, the team acquiring would have to pay all of the back pay or just the portion that he hadn't earned yet. And we, we, over time, we quickly learned that, oh, it's the latter. It's, you don't have to pay the back pay, but you still have to pay the deferred money that he hasn't earned yet. So that's what the Dodgers were on the hook for. So Scherzer's, you know, the rest of his current 2021 salary at the time, as well as the part of the 2021 salary that he hadn't earned yet. So if that makes sense. And so the math was complicated, but we sorted that out. Um, Turner was the unexpected one because you know they didn't have to trade him and you would think that the that the Dodgers didn't need him because obviously at the time they had Corey Seager at short but they plugged him in at second um, and it worked out really well and the Nationals I think made a smart deal by getting two top prospects and a couple throw-ins so yeah this one felt great it was like the flagship trade of the deadline and I think we we just got some credit for getting as close as we did yep absolutely all right, now we're going to be moving on to this offseason, so we can be especially brief with these. <laughs> um, and we're moving on to the Matt Olson trade. We talked about that a little bit earlier in this episode. Uh, it was Olson at 45.3 to the Atlanta Braves in exchange for Shea Langoliers at 27.8, catcher, outfielder Christian Pache at 7.5, and right-handed pitchers Ryan Cusick at 5.4 and Joey Estes at 2.6. And so it's 45.3 to the Braves, 43.3 to Oakland. And especially given some of the uncertainty within the model after the lockout, and maybe you can discuss kind of your speculation on that, uh, but it, it felt good that this was one of the first, this was one of the biggest trades of the, the post-lockout offseason or just the offseason as a whole. And uh, it's it's like a nearly perfect. And I mean, I've, I've said this <laughs> probably 10 times by now, but it, it felt really good that, you know, the names are reported. You plug them in, you click the button and it says trade accepted. <laughs> like there, yeah. there's nothing. It, it's probably fun as a site user to do that, to have that happen in real time. But there's nothing that feels better as, as the people who kind of hang our hats on this model being effective going into our own model putting the players in and getting that kind of green check mark like that. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, it's a really cool feeling. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. We, so, you know, the other thing we have to consider is once we sort of settle on a number early in the off season, you know, we try not to change it too much because everyone's kind of playing around with the simulator and making trades based on it. And so, if, you know, like, but then the lockout happened and you're not sure if like, okay, is that number still accurate three months later or not? But we sort of let, just left things alone. And it turns out it was, <laughs> at least in this case. Um, so I was glad to see that the A's sort of held out for the, the package that they deserved. Now, one of the, the criticisms uh, we had earlier before, like, why was Pache so low? He Wasn't he a top prospect? Well, he was, but a lot of time had gone, uh, and he still hadn't hit 
both at the major league level, and he even he had some struggles a little bit at the AAA level when they sent him back down again. And notably, we learned one of the things we've learned over time is to watch the front offices, watch what they do. And you know, they didn't bring him up when they needed outfielders. When Acuna went down, when they lost Ozuna, you know, they signed out Monte and Heredia to fill some gaps instead of bringing up Pache, which told you they didn't have a whole lot of confidence in him, which told you that he wasn't as valued as he should have been based on some other things. So that's why we felt confident that you know his number was relatively low. And so, you know, if we'd have been a little bit higher, it would have been an overpay, but um, I felt good about this one uh, on the whole. Yeah, if, if this trade had gone through at the 2019 trade deadline, we would have had it as a massive overpay. Like, not, like <laughs> I'm, I'm saying like transplanting all these players yeah, yeah, to that point. Yeah, or, yeah. If, or if we just take the model that we had back then and we still were running with the same thing, it would have been a massive overpay. We would have had Pache at like 30 yeah, <laughs> something yeah, yeah. Like that. And so we've learned we've learned some things. Yeah, exactly. That's another one that this one just kind of speaks to how the site has grown and improved on its own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the last one, we just talked about it, I think, in the last episode, if not the one before that. It's the Kimbrel for Pollock trade that just went through uh, Dodgers and White Sox swapping the two Kimbrel at negative one Pollock at negative one. And like we discussed in that episode, it was kind of the cherry on top. Um, kind of putting putting a bow on it. That's that's the metaphor I was looking for. <laughs> it was putting a bow on the, the Craig Kimbrell to the White Sox saga where they <laughs> gave up just a boatload for him at the deadline and it really just shattered our model. Like, it, it, and The only conclusion we could come with was that it was an overpay because even if we were... Uh, we knew we had to be in the right neighborhood on all three guys that were traded. It was Kimbrell, it was Cody Hoyer, and it was Nick Madrigal. We know we had to be somewhat in the neighborhood on those guys. So even if we said, okay, what if we're fairly low on Kimbrel somehow and we're fairly high on both Hoyer and Madrigal, it was still rejected. There was still just a huge gap between the two yeah. sides. Yeah. And, and so we felt pretty confident that it was just a massive overpay. And we we got some criticism for that one. Like we, we had some people saying like, no, there's no way you guys are so wrong. Kimbrel's just worth so much here, and and you know, Madrigal's just a second baseman, and Hoyer's just the, the whatever reliever. They didn't need him because they got Kimbrel, and and the model doesn't work, and blah blah blah. You know the things that the things that we hear on Twitter all the time. <laughs> um, we got plenty of pushback for that Kimbrel one, and like I said in the last episode, like the fact that his value with just one. A poor second half with just 15, 20 bad innings. I think it ended up being 23 innings. The fact that that tanked his value all the way to being a negative one, to all the way to being traded straight up for another slightly underwater veteran in AJ Pollock is really indicative that, yes, we were right at the deadline, at least somewhat, and it was a, a pretty massive overpay. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, he was making $16 million a year with an option to make another $16 million in 2022. So he was already getting paid pretty much top dollar for a closer. I mean, you'll notice Kenley Jansen got $16 million this year. You know, typically the top closers get between 16 and 20 So there wasn't a lot of surplus value, even though we acknowledge Kimbrell had was just insane the first half of 2021. His numbers were ridiculous. So we kept slowly raising our value of him to the point where it was, you know, it was a positive surplus, but it wasn't crazy. But what they got was crazy, right? I mean, Magical got six years of control at the time. I know he's been injured. I know he's more of a singles hitter. And Hoyer was actually a pretty good reliever. And now since then, he's had Tommy John. So you could like pick it apart and say, well, maybe they weren't that valuable. But to your point, they they do still carry a lot of value. And it definitely wasn't overpay. And I think everybody sort of sees that now. And now the fact that 
<clears throat> they had to trade Kimbrell subsequently for a guy who was also overpaid kind of validates that. So I think that's what we're saying here is that in the, in the long run, I think, you know, we're trying to be reasonable. We're not trying to get too crazy. We know things can get a little bit volatile deadline, but we're trying to sort of stay reasonable. And by staying reasonable, we were right in the long run. Yeah. As we've said repeatedly, we're modeling an imperfect system. There's going to be variants. There's going to be trades that mm -hmm. just completely fall out of it for whatever reason. And we're never going to hear the exact reason because we're not going to, you know, we don't have a direct line to Theo Epps, or was it Jed Hoyer at the time? Yeah, we don't have a direct yeah. line to Jed Hoyer and, and Kenny Williams. Is he still in charge there? Uh, Rick Hahn. Uh, Rick, Rick Hahn, yeah. We don't have a direct line to those two that so after this goes through we can ask them and they'll say oh well this is why it was off from your model like we don't have that we can only speculate and go off of what information does kind of leak through but we but we are fully aware that it is an imperfect system and we're not going to overhaul the model every time a trade is rejected we just have to trust that on the aggregate we're going to get most of them right and to this point we have and, and i really quick before we wrap up here i want to make it very clear that this is our us, you know, looking back because it's a 50th episode, whatever, celebrating some of the fun ones, having a good time here. This is by no means us trying to present ourselves and the model as being perfect. There are obviously some big misses littered in with there, and we've mentioned a couple of them along the way. But it's been a successful model. I am thrilled with how far we've come in the handful of years that the model has been up what is it now two and a half coming up on mm -hmm. three is my mm -hmm. math there right <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so it's really just you know i think we deserve a little opportunity to pat ourselves on the back and and have uh, reminisce yeah fair enough hopefully you agree all you people yes. who are listening <laughs> yes and thank you so much for doing so do you have anything else to hit on this week john no, I think just um, now that we're in the regular season and um, we're looking ahead, it's going to be a little bit of a lull period, I think, for like, you know, there might be a occasionally there's some minor trades, so we'll cover those. Um, but, you know, pretty soon you'll start to see some activity on the site with like looking ahead to the trade deadline. It's really not too far away. Things will get busy in June, maybe even a little bit in May, so we're not too far away. Um, so we'll look forward to that. Uh, we'll be updating our numbers uh, in May. Um, we want to make sure to be, not do it too soon because the sample sizes are very small right now. Uh, but we'll get to it, and so um, you'll start to see some updated numbers uh, in you know in a little while. Yep, and this year's trade deadline is August second, the best birthday gift baseball could give me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we went long, but that'll do it yep. for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.